Welcome everybody to episode number 26 of Sports Cards Live. Another great show lined up tonight, uh, one that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And I got to admit, I, I know I say that basically every time, but it is 100% true every time. I look forward to this uh, all throughout the day, all throughout the week, like just leading up for it. Actually, as soon as I book a guest, I literally cannot wait to do the show with said guest. It, it's just really so much fun. So this is episode number 26. Um, episode number 25 was back on Saturday with Sean Chalk, who is the Wayne Gretzky of Wayne Gretzky Collectors. Please go check out that episode. It lives on the YouTube channel, Sports Cards Live. And again, I like to warn everybody, these episodes are long. They go up to two hours, sometimes even longer. So don't feel like you got to watch it all at once. It's, it's a lot of time. Watch it in bits and bites here and there. Uh, you know, YouTube will remember where you left off. I also want to thank Chris McGill, who was my guest last Wednesday, episode number 24. We missed his favorite player, Jordan, episode number, we missed giving him episode number three, 23, sorry, by one. Uh, and we have that same issue uh, tonight, but we won't talk about that right now. Um, I also want to thank Chris for having me as his guest on his episode five of Conversations with Chris. Uh, it was pretty cool because episode number four, he had Dr. James Beckett as his guest, so, which was just, uh, who doesn't want to follow Dr. James Beckett? Couldn't be prouder. So thanks again to Chris and the House of Jordans for that. Coming up on Saturday, my guest is Chris Barr. Chris is the product manager at Panini for the basketball line of cards. If you're a basketball fan, I know many of you are, especially if you're here to watch Adam on this show tonight. You're going to want to tune in on Saturday. Chris Barr has been working in the industry for several years and is going to be an amazing guy to chat with about what goes on at Panini and basketball cards and all sorts of wonderful stuff. And then following uh, Chris next Saturday is going to be Grant Sandground. Grant is the director of product development for Upper Deck. So that's going to be another really informational, uh, interesting discussion. So be sure to come and check that out. If you are for, if it's your first time watching Sports Cards Live, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Adam, for bringing new guests to the show. And please do consider subscribing to the YouTube channel. If you don't mind, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, okay, I have a list of shout outs to do um, for various channels that I just want to mention. Uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of guys out there creating content. So I'm just going to run through these guys, all right? I'm sure a bunch of them, hopefully some of them are in the room tonight. We'll see them shortly. But I just want to go through this right now. And I want to mention that if you go to the YouTube channel for Sports Cards Live on the main page, there is a list of sort of my favorite YouTube channels. And all these guys are listed there. So I want to shout them out. House of Jordans, of course, goes without saying. Uh, Ziggy knows. Ziggy does a, a weekly content review among other sort of videos. Check out Ziggy No. Uh, because I'm Carlos. Carlos, just a great guy to watch and listen to. Covers a lot of hockey. Really interesting stuff. The personal finance dad. Another guy you have to be watching if you are looking for more content, 90s b-ball cards, another great one. Just entertaining stuff. There's people out there doing entertaining entertaining YouTube content, CRT sports cards, especially if you're interested in Topps Project 2020. The Center Ice Cardcast is a relatively new hockey uh, podcast, and they are coming up. I think they just did episode six. And finally, my buddy Eric at Beckett Media. Um, check out his show, uh, uh, Beckett Live Presents has great guests, including Steve Grad, which is a regular uh, uh, appearance for them, um, usually on Tuesdays. They call that show Grad School. All right, let's bring out tonight's guest. His name is Adam. He goes by the real 27 guy on Instagram. He has close to 3, 
thousand followers. Maybe we can get him there after tonight. He is a uh, truly an advanced and passionate basketball card collector. Let's bring him out. Adam, it is amazing to have you here on episode number 26 of Sports Cards Live. I've been looking forward to this, as I just said, for quite some time, ever since I asked you to come on, ever since I actually started planning the show and you and I were chatting on Instagram a little bit about it. And uh, I knew that you were on my hit list to get on here. So it's great to have you. You ready to do this? How are you doing tonight? Dude, I am so glad that you invited me. I The thing that you're not telling people is I basically had to beg you to be one of the guests amongst these incredible uh, guests that you've had on as of late. Guys like Steve Rad and uh, Chris and Justin and, and just a bunch of guys who are a whole heck of a lot smarter than me. So uh, the only thing the only thing that I have to complain about is episode number 26. I mean, couldn't we have waited just a couple of days? Couldn't we have just done that? I need to start thinking about this a little bit more closely and lining up episodes with numbers that are important to my guests. You go by the real 27 guy and uh, and I have you on episode 26. Like Just like with Chris uh, McGill, I, I missed you by one episode and uh, I sure wish I could undo that. But hey, you know what? We're booked. We're going to do it. We're going to have a great time nonetheless. Before we jump into the topics, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about sort of how do we really know each other. Uh, we're gonna go through your history in the hobby. We're gonna talk about uh, your podcast a little bit, your presence on Instagram, and and a bunch of other things. Before we do that, we got people in the room already. Let's say some hellos, welcome people to the show, see who's here, and then we'll kick it off. So we got Daniel. Daniel, good evening, everyone. Looking forward to another great Daniel. Thank you for watching. As usual, I sent you your cards today, as you well know. Nineties B-ball cards right there. I've been looking forward to this one all day. Thank you. For tuning in, of course. Josh says, "Good evening, everyone. Looking forward to another." Thank you, Josh, for tuning in. Irving, you, I use it as a sleep relaxer. Whatever it takes, Irving. We're just happy to have you here, my man. Happy to have you, Austin. Good evening, Irving. Again, Irving. Again, Irving. Again. <laughs> Adil, welcome to the show. Adil's one of my poker buddies. Happy to have you, Adil. Thanks for tuning in. Carlos, never heard of <laughs> Carlos. You, you, your sarcasm. I, I, I love it, man. That's why I watch your show. Uh, Jason, good evening. Good to have you. Ziggy, welcome as usual. 90s b-ball cards. Hey, man, you are welcome. My number 22. We missed that opportunity. Next time for me is 72. Well, that's going to be several months down the road. But uh, but uh, what well, Jake, we'll try we'll try and get you on for episode number 72. I'll write it down right now. Hey, uh, Ralphie's in the house. He's heating up. Jams it in. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Great to have you all here. So, Adam, we're going to kick it off. I've known you from your Instagram account for probably a year and a half now. Like I said earlier, you've got almost 3,000 followers. That's that's epic. That's that's a lot of uh, a lot of followers. So, you're very well known on 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 Instagram. Let before we kick it off really, how, you know, I remember I met you at the first for the first time at the National in August in Chicago last year. Can you sort of tell everybody watching how did that go down? How did we really meet for the first time? Well, you know, I think what happens in this hobby a lot of times is you'll you'll see somebody on a message board, you'll kind of take notice of them, you kind of can, can sometimes see when somebody's, you know, one of the smarter guys. And so, um, so I, I did know you and I, I you said your name when we met, at, um, when we met at the National uh, last year, and I went, okay, yeah, and I had to think about it there for a second. But it was awesome because you, you know, just like you show on this on on this this show that you do, you have a great enthusiasm, right? So like you saw me and you were like, Adam, the twenty seven guy, I know you. Like 
let's talk, let's talk about your cards. And then you were like, do you have the such and such card with you? And I was like, yeah. And you know, you took a picture with some of me with some of the cards, which was like, for me felt really like amazing. I was like, wow, somebody knows who I am. And this Jeremy guy's pretty cool. So um, yeah, that was kind of, that was kind of our first, our first uh, moment where we kind of got to know each other and we hung out for, I don't know, half an hour, you, me and Rodman. And uh, yeah, we just had a blast. The national was awesome. Yeah. And you had, you did have a, you, you had a box filled with cards and I mean, that was, that box was something that, you know, you couldn't take your eyes off it for a second. You'd probably get really nervous. It was, it's an amazing, it was an amazing box filled with amazing cards. And I remember one of the, one of the cards that you had was your, your uh, Michael Jordan jambalaya, the 97 jambalaya. And I remember saying, Hey, can I, can I hold that? I want to see it. You know, I, I hadn't ever held one in my life before. I've seen these cards selling on eBay at card shows for, pretty big numbers along the way. And here was one in, here was one, you know, in flesh and blood. And I got to actually hold it and look at it. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to own one of these, you know, maybe one day. Well, lo and behold, I have one now because I, it never left my mind that that was amongst your box of amazing cardboard was this jambalaya, which to me was kind of the most iconic Jordan insert of the nineties. I think a lot of people feel that way. And it just, I could never stop pining for it. And I moved some things around earlier this year and I managed to pick one up. So I kind of, I kind of blame you for that. Although blame isn't the, 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 the fair word really, but I thank you for that as well. Um, and it left a good, you know, that, that, uh, and the reason why we're talking about this for people watching it, again, it comes down to the community of the hobby. It comes down to the relationships that we build through the hobby, starting online a lot of the times, moving into the card shows. And it was cool for me to, you know, I'd seen in your Instagram account, I'd seen the odd picture of your face. So I did kind of know what you looked like, but to see somebody that you only see through Instagram or Facebook or wherever in the flesh and blood, walking the floor of the biggest card show in the world, it was just cool. And, um, you know, hanging out with Rodman, another advanced and, and really passionate uh, basketball collector, um, really made that show for me. So I kind of came out of that show with two guys I consider friends, you and him, amongst other people that I met. And it was just a really great way to um, really sort of immerse myself in the basketball culture, because I do come mostly from the hockey end of things. So uh, I want to thank you for that. Um, I want to just uh, welcome a few more people who are here. Uh, this is Amit. Hi, Jeremy. Decided to do YouTube today. Amit, good. Always better to watch on YouTube, guys, because you do get the uh, you're not delayed as you are on Facebook. Carlos is here. Should be fun. Love the podcast as well. So looking forward to this one. There's a so Carlos watches your podcast, uh, Adam, and we will talk about that a little bit in a little bit here. Uh, Her Hermanamac, I am Adam's son. Is that your son for real? Um, yeah, Hermanamac, I think is my wife's account. So that is Aaron, my son, who's uh, who's logging in there, which is right on. Aaron. Well, I I told him that he should do it tonight. So he probably has to go to bed before the end of it, but uh, glad to have him here for the moment. Aaron, welcome to Sports Cards Live. It's, it's awesome to have your dad on the show. So thank you yourself for tuning in. Okay, let's get into it. So let's start with your history in the hobby. You know, people always, we all come from a different hobby, a different history. We all got to today differently, sort of whether you came in when you were five years old or you came in five months ago or five years ago. What's your story, kind of? How did you get into the hobby, and what brought you to to today, and as far as collecting goes? 
Yeah, um, I think when you ask this question of a lot of the basketball guys that you'll have on, they'll say something about how they came back in 2015 or 2016. I'm one of those very strange individuals who just never left. I started collecting in the late 80s when I was a really young kid. I remember my first basketball card was a 1987 Magic Johnson Fleer card. I collected the 1990 hoop set. And I can tell you about basically where I was and what I was collecting literally every year of my life since then. So um, I worked at a card shop for about seven years and that gave me great experience. Um, and then, you know, basically buying and selling cards became a way for me to pay for my college, pay for my, you know, pay for a lot of different things along the way. And, uh, and at various times I've been very strong on the flipper side or the what people might call the investor side. And then, uh, but now I find myself kind of in a different spot and uh, more just a guy who's just always trying to make his collection, um, you know, better. So, but always just a basketball guy. That's all I collect. You could, you could name about five hockey players before I would get to the end of my list of current hockey stars. Um, but I kind of, I, I think of myself, maybe I'm not, but I think of myself as being somebody who, who's pretty well-versed in the world of basketball cards. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that from, from what I've seen. Um, at what point did you find yourself really getting into the 90s inserts, which are, you know, are all the rage in basketball? I mean, there, there's the new rage now with the prisms and, and the opticolos and all these things that are coming out, uh, you know, this year and last year with guys like Giannis, I know he's not this year, last year, but Giannis and, uh, and Zion now, of course. But when did you really get into the, the elusive 90s inserts that command, you know, um, you know, measurable dollars, big money, and in most cases, and are, are highly sought after by so many people, like investors, collectors, young and old? When did you really uh, take a liking to those cards? You know, you know, I mentioned that I, that I at one point was more of a flipper. Well, this thing happened in the really the late 90s or the early 2000s where some of the high-end insert cards sold for a lot more than maybe people knew locally here in Salt Lake. And so every once in a while, I would get a chance to acquire something and I had a pretty good sense of what it would sell for. This became kind of a money-making thing for me. And along the way, I realized how rare they really were, right? We would have lots of people who would bring cards into the shop almost never did you see one of these, you know, Playmakers Theater, uh, you know, uh, Showcase, Legacy, uh, PNG, any of those things that you always hear about, you, you just didn't see them. And so as I look back at my childhood, those are the key cards of my childhood. Those are the cards that were in the Beckett that, you know, people would make copies of and put them in the showcase and pretend that they had one, right? No one ever thought that you could actually, like, I never believed that I would even see a Jordan Jamble let alone own a Jordan Jambalaya. And so I got older, I you know, started to make a little bit more money and, and it, became, it became a possibility for me to own some of these things. And then I, I looked at where I thought the market was headed in terms of how many you know, people were, were coming into the hobby, people who didn't have money now suddenly having money. And I thought, these seem like really smart investments. So I made a lot of those investments. And then you know, now I sit in that place where I'm like, I like them. I don't have to sell them and they're key and important to my collection. And so I, you know, I still have most of them that I have, I've had for years though. I haven't bought them in over the last year. Most of them I've had for a long time. Yeah. You're, you're very selective when you do add a new card to your collection. Cause you, 
you uh, you share the information on Instagram and you uh, will get to that. That's a key part of what I want to talk about because you you do have a really unique method of how you've curated your personal collection. And I want I want to bring that. We have some viewers who are newer to the hobby and maybe, uh, you know, looking to invest in certain cards. But I think they also want to collect. You use the term invest quite a few times just when you were speaking there. Um, can you just sort of contrast that with how you look at yourself in terms of where you are on the continuum of investor to collector? Yeah, um, you know, even as I used it, I don't feel great about using it because I think people mean different things when they say it. I'll tell you what I mean. I think there was a time in the past where I really was very focused on making money. I don't think I'm as focused on it today. Um, and, and that to me is the different differentiator. I think you can be both as one of your previous uh, guests talked about. Um, we can we can both be somebody who wants to m make money and wants to collect at the same time. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I think um, I think that's what most of us probably ought to do if we want to better our collection all the time. But when, when I say when I hear investor, I, I try to figure out what people are saying. What I'm saying clearly is um, focused on money or focused on cardboard. And now I'm very firmly in the cardboard camp. So you've sort of moved towards the collector end of the continuum from being maybe more in the middle or, or you're just you're moving along it this way as time goes by because uh, you just love what you own, which I think says it speaks to the fact that you are you are a collector. I mean, you told me the other day you've been collecting since you were four years old. You've been car you've been doing cards. You've had cards in your life every year of your life since you were four. So, I mean, that, that speaks a lot. We're just gonna say hello, Frankie3500 is in the house. Frankie, welcome to Sports Cards Live. As always, great to have you. And I know this guest uh, means even more to you. So thanks for tuning in. Okay, so Adam, you, in addition to being, you know, really um, present on Instagram, having a great account, I think everybody should really follow it. I'm actually gonna throw that up there right now, guys. So. Right there, you know, if you're not already follow, if uh, many of you are, but if you're not already following him, you can follow Adam on Instagram at the Real Twenty Seven Guy. And we're now going to talk a little bit about your podcast that's called the Basketball Card Podcast. Straight into the point, you got that name early. You kind of you were you're sort of a pioneer in the world of sports card podcasts and basketball card podcasts, maybe specifically. Um, talk a bit about that. What got you started with doing your podcast and uh, and kind of take us through from then till now. So uh, I'm an accountant and as an accountant, a lot of times I'll come into work and I will work on things that I know how to do um, in a way that I don't actually have to use my whole brain, um, which is a funny thing to say, but it's true, right? Sometimes you have jobs like that that you get to just kind of go through quickly. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've listened to a lot of podcasts for years. And in the middle of 2016, I'm sitting there and I realize, why in the world not have a basketball card podcast. This is insane. We should we should totally have something. It should be every week. It should discuss the current things that are happening at the time. There should be conversational pieces. And I had all of these great ideas. Here's the problem. I have a really busy job. I have a wife and three wonderful children. I have responsibilities um, with my church and, and other things that that keep me very engaged. And my life is a busy one, but I am like completely obsessive about cardboard, right? So I said, that's it, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna create this thing. Around that time though, my wife uh, got pregnant, we had our third kid, and I just, I looked in the mirror and I said, I've gotta cut something out of my life, and that's what I cut. 
then over the course of the next few years, a lot of a lot of far better shows, including your own, popped up and uh, really put everything that I ever did to shame. But the podcast is still wonderful because it gives me an outlet to just say, this is really what I think. This is really what I believe. And whether it's right or not, you can decide. But since I've got 30 years of experience in the hobby and I am you know, somebody who's really passionate about it, I think it resonates with some people. And I have a lot of fun with it and get a lot of people who write back and say, hey, I really like how you talked about X, Y, and Z, or tell me more about you know this. And to your point from a, from a previous episode, it's about educating people too. So that's kind of, that's kind of why we do it. So you collect, you collect Jordan cards, you collect nineties cards, you collect, but you, you're also, you're, you're in Salt Lake city, Utah, you're a Utah jazz fan through and through lifelong. Do you collect any of the, do you collect the John Stockton's, the Carl Malone's, those guys from like, and I, I, I'm really curious about your vintage collecting because I've seen a few vintage cards. How do you kind of balance your collection in terms of the modern guys that are really, really, and you know, again, we'll use that term investment, but investment worthy versus the guys that you want to collect because that's where your heart is because that's your team. So this is probably a good time to talk about the top 100. Um, the top 100 is something that I do that is really just crazy. And I wouldn't recommend that anyone takes the amount of time on doing something with their collection the way that I do it on mine. Um, but, but the idea is I don't want to be a hoarder. I don't want to collect everything. I want to collect things that I really enjoy. I never open packs of cards. I almost never, like unless somebody gives them to me, I don't open packs. So I don't end up with stuff that I don't want unless I'm buying a lot to turn and flip it, which I still do so that I have cash flow to be able to, you know, to be able to buy the things that I want to. So but the purpose of the 100 is not only to not become a hoarder, but it's to also organize my collection in a way that that is that fills sort of every piece of what I want in a collection. So what do I want in a collection? I want some of the greats. And that's where the majority of my collection is, right? The majority of the value is Kobe, it's Jordan, and it's LeBron. But it's not like, that. those aren't the, the only really important cards to me. Almost everyone, if you were to name like the 20 greatest players in the history of the league, almost everyone's represented. Um, I have prospects represented, not a lot, but a couple that I really like. And then I've got some vintage cards that I think are really key and important and unusual. And that if I was to sell, would be hard to, to, to come by again. So when I look at my whole of my collection, I'm always saying, what do I need to fill? What's the thing that's missing from, from the top 100? And one example of that is uh, last year, I looked at my list and I thought, Tim Duncan isn't on it. And Tim Duncan is, this is, this is a controversial talk uh, take. I think Tim Duncan's the fifth best player in the history of the game. And um, if he's the fifth best player in the history of the game, I darn well better have a card on the top 100 of him. So I went out and I found one. I and mean, that, that card's there to stay unless I replace it with another Duncan or unless there's something that I have to, that I have to move it for to go get something else. So the top 100, it's interesting because I actually put that on Instagram and Facebook where I sort of promoted the show for tonight. I had that as one of the kind of topics that we were going to discuss. So I, I want to just let people understand a bit more about what, what it really is. So my understanding is that the top one, your personal collection is a hundred cards. Sometimes it'll go a bit higher if you, you know, if you haven't had time to move a few out or it'll go a bit lower, 
but kind of every year you then go through your collection, you rank your cards from one to 100, and then every day on Instagram for about three months, you post one card, you post a picture, of the, well, actually you post a video of the card, and you go into some lengthy discussion about why it's important to you, why the card is unique, perhaps it's rarity. Um, why do you go through that process uh, and and do you find that the that your followers on Instagram enjoy it? I think some people really enjoy it. I think that a lot of people like things on Instagram that they have similar cards of. It sort of becomes this like, if I can make somebody see that this card is cool, then my card will be worth more money, right? And so a lot of times people are liking things that they have similar cards of. Um, I'm sure I know some people are some people really like the videos. I started this year just doing images and I didn't have me talking and I have, excuse me, I had some pretty strong feedback from a couple of people who are like, Adam, this isn't good. It needs you. It needs a part of the 27 guy in it and explaining why it's important, why it fits the need. So I do, I, I create the list for, for the reason, uh, for all the reasons that I talked about. And also because it's like a masterful inventory tool. You know, you are going to come across cards that you really want, that you can't afford without selling other cards. It's just going to happen. It's happened to me in the last couple of weeks, right? And so then what I get to do is I get to look at the list, which is ordered by my belief of, of the card's value. And I look at it and I say, what cards from this, from this list can I live without that then can create the, the money to then go get the other thing that my, that my collection needs more? Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, it does. And if that ha so let's say, let's say you want, let's say you want to buy a card that's going to cost, you know, I'll just use some, some, some figures here. It's going to cost $5,000 and you're going to sell five $1,000 cards to raise that $5,000. So now you only have 95 cards in your collection or 96, I guess, because you have that one incoming. What do you do to fill those empty four spots in that top 100 list? Or do you kind of have a few, do you actually have more than 100 cards in your collection and you have some reserves that kind of get back into the top 100 because some other cards left? If, if I'm telling you the truth, each of the three years I've done this, I can't get it to 100. This year I got it to 101 and I said, the first card was an Oscar Robertson autographed rookie card. And I looked at it and I thought, I cannot cut that. That is like a, an amazing key card. It's an important part of the collection. I, I don't mind if it's number 50 or number 60, but I can't have it fall out of the top 100. So my issue is more like not having too much. I have a natural collector tendency to like to keep everything that I like. Um, one other thing that I'd add is it's not just 100 cards because I love doing sets and I think sets are a lot of fun. And so this year I kind of implemented a new rule, which is 100 slots. And I think I've got, I think I've got five sets or partial sets on the, on the um, list this year. Okay. That, that, that's pretty cool. So that, that allows you to really collect a bit more and not be stuck with only a hundred or 105 cards. I mean, how many mail days can you really have if you can only have 100 cards at any at any one time? But I think it's an interesting approach. And I, that's why I wanted to discuss it because I want I want people out there who are watching to to understand that, you know, we all we all approach this hobby in our own unique way. And you you mentioned earlier that, you know, um, it, it's kind of what helps you not be the hoarder that you don't want to be because you it forces you to focus and it forces you to make some tough decisions. But it also causes you to manage your 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 chip stack, if you will, your bet, your, your hobby bankroll. Right. So 
I think it's a really neat approach. And I really wanted to, to let people know that, you know, that that's one way you can do it. You don't have to collect everything. You know, like some of, you know, you've got a hundred cards. I've got like 3000 cards that I kind of have listed out that I consider my core collection. So um, that's, it's really cool to hear that. All right, a few more comments here. Uh, Billy says, are there any singles you regret passing on over the years since you've been at it for years? You've had, you've, you had to have had the chance to get some great cards that are now ex insanely expensive. Any kind of big fish that got away? Oh man, I, I can tell a lot of stories about cards that I have owned and sold and cards that I, I just believed that would take off and I didn't purchase. I mean, there, there was a time where I, I made an offer on five Steph Curry exquisite rookies. Those are the ones that are numbered to 225. And I offered 700 and the guy countered me 750 and I was arrogant enough to say no. Oh. And, and that's one of just hundreds of examples. I own the Russell Westbrook Superfractor rookie. I sold it for $850, right? I've made lots and lots of mistakes in the name of making a couple hundred bucks. Um, but that's what you learn is you're, you know, is you're flipping and is you're investing and is you're trying to make money. And I don't regret those things because those decisions allowed me to gain the capital to have the collection that I have. And I've got like, I've got a, I've got a nice collection, um, but I don't, I don't have a nice collection because I was always out spending the most money. It's been, it's been a meticulous sort of, um, you know, one card at a time thing. The other thing that I want to add here, you know, you mentioned that people collect in different ways. And I think if I was to listen to a guy like me explaining how I collect, I would probably think that guy doesn't sound very smart. He should, he should try to sell when, when it's, you know, when the market's at, at its, at its best. But I will tell you that my idea of not selling my best cards is why I still own cards that are worth an incredible amount of money. You know, that I didn't, I should have, according to a lot of people, cashed out one of my cards were worth two or three times what I paid for them. And I just told people, no, you know, people will come along and they'll be like, what did you pay? And I'll tell them. And then they'll say, okay, I'll give you X. And my answer is just no, because I don't want to sell my best cards because I've sold enough of my best cards. Here's the, here's the best answer. I had a Will Chamberlain autographed rookie card. There's three of them in the world. And I had one of them and I sold it and I will never, ever get that card back. Uh, so that might be your biggest regret in terms of cards that you've let go? I think so, man. I think so. That, well, actually, okay, there's one more. Okay, there's one more. And that is um, in the 2014 Eminence set, which is, you know, not a popular set for most people. Most people don't even know what it is. Um, most people think it's ugly or whatever else. I love it. It's easily my favorite Panini set. Um, Kobe Bryant had his first championship tag audit, uh, patch. And he signed it and then he inscribed it 16 or he, he inscribed it five times champs, which is the, you know, the, the number of championships that he won with the Lakers. And at the time I owned it, I wasn't the biggest Kobe fan. And now I find myself as like one of the biggest Kobe fans out there. I know who has the card. He knows that I want it. It's worth so much money. I know there's no chance I'll, ne I'll never own that card again, but that's that one even more than the Wilt. I just, I kick myself for letting Yeah. Well, you might have to give up some of the top cards on your list to get a card like that back. But I mean, knowing some of the top cards on that you own, I mean, you own some true whales in the hobby, like the play, the Michael Jordan Playmakers Theater, numbered to a hundred. I mean, everybody that, that knows Jordan 90s Jordan inserts uh lusts for that card. I mean, it's something I I, you know, it's it, it's just nice to be able to see one one time when 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 you 
bring yours to the show type of thing. It's something that you just don't ever see. And I think a lot of us just uh, throw our arms up and figure, hey, we, we won't get it. But, uh, you know, number one, they're tough to find. The people that own them aren't giving them up. And number two, if it comes up, you know, you're going to have to sell your house kind of thing to pick it up. So, but you're, you're, you know, you, I think you are smart and that you've held your, you've held your cards for so long and just enjoyed the values, the value increase. I'm like, you, why? If you sell it, you just got to go buy it again down the road, which is probably going to cost you more. So I'm with you. All right, Carlo, this is going back a few minutes. Carlos says, impressive. I've been, I've been nonstop since 1990. So you've got me by a few years. Tips is cap for sure. Uh, your son, Aaron says, I'm in two of his podcasts as you very well should be young Aaron. Very nice. Uh, Ralphie says, Adam, what are your thoughts on the upper deck college product FLIR retro as an example? You know, some of those are some, some of those cards are, are awesome. I know that Mike has one of his better autographs from, from one of those sets. Um, I know that, and I will, I will tell you this, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in not in looking at things that are, that are undervalued. Right. A big part of why I've been able to build a collection that I have been is not buying the number one thing on my want list, but buying the number one thing on my, I think that's undervalued list. And those are two different types of things that I think you need to keep in your head. A few years ago, I looked at the Jordan autographs out of UD Black and uh, Exquisite after he, after he retired. And I compared that to his Wizards autos and they were worth way less than the Wizards autos. And I thought, if I was just a guy who wanted a Jordan autograph, would I want him in his Wizards uniform or his UNC uniform? And to me, it's a no-brainer. I'd rather have a UNC auto, a Jordan. And you know that I'm telling the truth when I say that because now I actually own a Wizards auto of Jordan and I don't own a UNC one. So why would I pump something that I don't have? But um, but I, I think that uh, I think that there's some some room there. The other thing that I'd say about that is. If you look back to the mid '90s, some of the great stars that you'd like to get an autograph of in their rookie years, with old autographs that they haven't signed like for twenty something years, some of those cost almost nothing compared to what their autographs are today. Guys like Garnett and Kobe and Duncan, you can get twenty something year old autographs for pennies on the dollar for what you pay for later autographs than that, just because they're in their in NBA uniform. So. Um, I don't know if they're the, I don't, you know, they're not probably on anyone's top. I've got to have that list, but I think they're probably near the top of the, I think that could be pretty underrated list. And, and let's face it in the, in the United States, there are a lot of college basketball fans, a lot of loyal alumni for, from their schools that collect their, their players. So I think there's definitely a market for it, but for someone like, like myself or yourself, who is a fan of the Utah jazz, uh, you know, an NBA team, Myself, who, I mean, I don't, college, high school basketball means nothing to me up here in Calgary, Alberta, but uh, but the NBA is sure is special. So I'd be leaning more towards uh, not adding those to my collection and wanting the the professional uh, team uniforms on them. What were you wanting to, to jump in? Yeah, so I, I do want to address, he mentioned specifically FLIR Retro. I had this year three cards on my top 100 from, from FLIR Retro. And what I like being able to say about each of them, I've, I've actually moved a couple of them to, to buy one of the big cards that I had to buy a couple weeks ago. But um, the one that I still have is the Allen Iverson uh, credentials. And it's number to nine. And I, I love to be able to say, I think this is his very best card in a Hoyas uniform. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's kind of cool. Like, I'm not going to ever own the best Allen Iverson Philadelphia 76ers card because he's got an incredible following. 
Um, but they've they've gained traction. Uh, there's some there's some precious metals cards tonight that are that are ending um, that are going higher than I thought they would, and and they've definitely been on an, on an upward trajectory. So um, uh, I don't know how to say his name. Stematis. Ralphie. Call him Ralphie. Ralphie. I think Ralphie's asking an interesting question that other people are asking right now too. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. What I've seen a few times actually recently on Instagram is people are pairing the actual 90s PMG license card with the 2012 Fleer Retro unlicensed or, or college licensed card. So that's cool. You know, there, there's a reason to do that for sure. And the Jordan, the LeBron PMGs from that 2012 Fleer Retro, they can they can hit well into the five digits pretty quickly. All right. Um and I do like this discussion because we're going to go to some more comments, but it's a good segue into the into the the way you approach the hobby, which the way you approach the cards you collect, and we'll we'll come to it. But basically, before I'll, I'll tease it a little bit, you don't collect cards that you consider to be commodity cards, the cards that you can go onto eBay and buy any day of the week, the tops, chromes, the the prisms, the the prism silvers, the, the, the refractors, you like really rare cards. So we're going to come back to that in a minute. Let's just go to a few more comments here. Amit, Amit says, they say when you want something done, give it to the busiest people. Those are the ones who take the chances and it works out. So he hears what he's picking up, what you're putting down. Jake says, yep, I'm right there with you. Create content and share your knowledge. That's a comment back about the podcast. So everyone, uh, everyone, you know, thank you for doing that. I, I love your podcast. I listen to it. And um, that's where I got some of the some of the questions I have and the topics for tonight. Actually, um, Paul says the 100 list. I love it. Yeah, I mean, ways to think about changing how you collect, augmenting how you collect, just refocusing. Just you know, not we're not saying go collect 100 cards. We're saying you have options. You don't have to buy everything. Be calculated. Be be smart with what you're buying. The 100 list is quite the challenge. Quite difficult. Yeah. Ralph, and if you you should be following um, Adam on Instagram by now, if you're not, and you can see it, you're in the middle of one of these right now because every year you redo this. It gives you your opportunity to refocus and make sure that you know what you've got, you love what you've got. If anything has sort of fallen out of favor, you can now sell it to bring in something new. And to me, it's like like I said to you the other night, your collection it, it's it's got its kind of its foundation, but it's kind of got a little bit of in and out here every so often and. That's what keeps it interesting, right? I think that's so, so cool. Amit says, kind of like doing Mary Kondo approach to your collection. I don't know what that means, Amit. Brett says, constant refining and quasi-limitations. Fantastic. Love the creative approach to the parameters to your PC. Anonymous Facebook user says, love your countdown list on Blowout, Adam. What is the toughest card you've ever gotten rid of? Um, you want to throw a single card that's the toughest one? Yeah, I think I think we hit it on the head earlier with that Kobe with that Kobe Eminence card. I just, I, especially now where I consider myself a Kobe collector and I didn't at the time, it just it just stings even worse. It it encapsulates his career, the Lakers franchise. And although I'm not a Lakers fan, and I hated when they played my Jazz, like you just you have to respect Kobe Bryant and 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 how he played and what he did for the game and. Um, I, I listen, you know, to, to obviously, you know, he's gone, but I listen to his words and, and watch the, the tapes and the highlights now. And I just, I find myself being more of a fan every day. Awesome. Okay. To the person whose comment this is, uh, I just put on the ticker at the bottom, please don't be an anonymous Facebook user. 
go to StreamYard.com slash Facebook and click the big blue button. That way we can recognize you and address you more directly. It just makes for a much more comfortable episode. Or you can just watch through YouTube and I can address you by your YouTube account name. And I'll just mention now, if you're new to Sports Cards Live, if Adam brought you uh, here to watch tonight because you are a follower of his, of his on Instagram, you love what he's doing, please consider subscribing to Sports Cards Live. This is episode number 26. There's 25 other episodes in the library, in the archive. They are long. Watch them in bits and pieces here and there. YouTube will remember where you left off last time. And you know what? I think um, maybe now I'll, I'll sort of announce who my uh, kind of the, the guest that I just lined up today for episode number 30, which will be occurring on July the 22nd. Um, I'm really excited about this. I thought, you know, this is somebody I'd love to have on the show. And he's a guy that, um, you know, I'd like to tie him into a special episode because he's really a special guy in the hobby. He's someone we all know. Well, we all know about. Everybody watching, everybody watching knows this person. And um, so the guest on episode number 30 that I am super, super proud, honored, excited to have join me will be none other than maybe the most recognizable name in the whole hobby, Dr. James Beckett, the man whose name is on the price guides that we have been buying and reading since the mid to late 80s. I mean, I bought episode, I bought, I've got all the first 10 hockey issues, the first, I got the Jordan issues, the early ones, the Barry Sanders issues, all those early ones. So I am so excited to have Dr. Beckett on the show for episode number 30. That is going to be uh, just a true honor. And um, I mean, he's a hobby legend. I don't know any name in the, I, I don't know any name in the hobby that, that has the recognition that he does any, any name at all. I mean, the athletes don't count. So anyway, I'm super stoked, super pumped about that. Uh, what, what, a, what an honor it'll be. And a uh, big thank you to Dr. Beckett. If you happen to be, wa to be watching right now, thank you for accepting my invitation. That was a cold call. I did have to cold call him and ask him to come on. And he got back to me within 30 minutes and said, uh, sounds good to me. Thank you for the invitation. And I'd like to repay the favor and have you as a guest on my podcast. So Dr. Beckett has a podcast that you can listen to on all the podcast uh, platforms as well as on YouTube. So I don't know when, but eventually, uh, actually, I know we're going to record it the night before we do our show, Sports Cards Live episode number 30, and I don't know when he'll he'll actually drop that episode, but I'm looking forward to hearing myself on his show and, of course, doing the episode with him. Truly an honor. Okay, Frankie says, can always spend, can always send more MJs my way for more funds. Frankie's a big MJ collector. Zach says, how do you balance things like set slash best card slash current card value slash potential future value when selecting a card for your collection? That's a, that's a good question. Can you, can you speak to that, Adam? Honestly, this is Zach's question is the best question because so let me just give an example. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I became aware that there was a Steph Curry uh, gold 2012 prison card that, that was available. And this was a card that I really, really wanted. But remember, I only have cards in my collection that I really like. So when you have to then make the decision of which cards to, and it's a, amongst a bunch of cards that you really love, you're and, and, and in a lot of them, you believe that they have high future value. It's just really difficult. I mean, there's not a, there's not a great way to do it, but you have to, that's when the whole idea of like the top 100 comes in because you know, Frankie said, you know, send me some more Jordans. I did send Frankie a Jordan 
And it wasn't a card that I felt good about moving. I didn't want to sell it. It was in my top like 60 or 65. So it's a significant card, but like I had another Jordan gold card. And so I felt some level of, okay, I can let that go. It might go up 10 times what it's worth right now, but I'm not going to try to guess what's going to go up because I find out that I'm wrong a lot of the time and the market moves in ways that aren't, aren't always logical. I work for a private equity firm and our job is to make good investments. And so I hear lots of talk about good investments and bad and what makes things go up and down. And the thing that, that, it, that it brings to light to me is that our hobby is totally nonsensical. It really is. It doesn't, it does not rationally make sense in a lot of cases, especially when you're looking at the short term, you look at the short term of how things go up and down Good luck. It doesn't make any sense because you have such a small number of players who can make such a huge difference. And actually they can make a huge difference in the long term too. So I don't, I don't have any idea, Zach, how to tell if whether something's going to go up or down, but I do know what's most important in my collection. And so when I, when I think about that, I'd say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to build it to the best capacity and I'm going to not think so much about what's going to go up because I'm going to trade cards that are going to go up in value because I only buy cards that I think are going to go up in value. All right, man. Awesome. Awesome explanation. I do want to, I teased it earlier. I do want to come back to discussing the whole concept between like commodity cards versus, you know, commodity slash high volume cards versus true rarity when it comes to your collection. I think that's a discussion that a lot of people want to hear before we get to that. Rodman just wants you to tell everybody that you once shared the court with the Honduran Ricky Rubio. Uh, Brett knew what a meat, Brett knew what a meat meant. I still don't. If someone could let me know, I, I might feel like I'm more in the loop here. Uh, ask him, ask him MJ card in his PC. What would be the last, what MJ card in your PC would be the last one you would ever sell? You think about it. Think about it. We're going to move on. There's a reference I wasn't expecting today. I still don't know what that reference was. I still don't know what that reference was. Uh, I am his son. Of course, his son is his favorite card. Uh, Billy has to be Gary V. I'm trying to get Gary V, but I don't, Gary V hasn't responded to my hashtags, my private messages, anything yet. So I'm confident. I think we'll get Gary V eventually, maybe episode 50. We'll see. We'll see. Um, all right. Yeah. Very nice. I think this is all on, uh, Dr. Beckett joining the show on episode number 30. Thank you very much. Thank you guys for that. Uh, Zach, uh, Carlos, Brett. Jason, that will be a cool episode. My first Beckett was the early 90s one with Gretzky on the cover. Yeah, I think everybody uh, in, in hockey had that uh, that that, uh, uh, that magazine at one point or another. Um, ask Okay, so back to back to Rodman's questions now. Which is the last one you would ever sell? I guess the similar questions. What is your favorite MJ in your personal collection? You've had some time to think about this now. I hate this question. I hate it because... I don't know how to get to one. I don't know how. I know he barely, get, he barely gets to a hundred. How is he going to get to one, Rodman? I don't know how to get to one. I think in my top ten, I think I've got four that will pro maybe five that, that are in the top ten, and I know which ones I think is the most valuable. There's two that are really tied. I got his PMG Championship that's a nine and it's beautiful. It's incredible, um, and I've got his Gold Fusion, which is literally his rarest insert card. I I think about inserts and parallels differently. Right. Um, I think an, a parallel is is an insert. But but then I, but like I say, I kind of divide the two out. And so the, the gold fusion is Jordan's rarest. But I, I'll tell you, and I don't think Rodman's going to like this answer, but I think the last card of my Jordans that, I, that I'll sell will be the Slam Bams. Um, it's numbered to 100, but I don't believe that 
I think it, I think it might be the rarest if we're really honest. It, it might it may be not the rarest by serial number, but as far as how often they pop up, it it doesn't pop up ever. Isn't isn't the fusion numbered to forty? It is, and and it it might it's the other one that might be the rarest. Those are those are the two. But the slam bams, I believe I believe that a lot of the hoops, and I would like you to ask Jim this. By the way, my level of like of being totally jealous of you that you get to interview him is like through the roof right now. I am so, so jealous that you get to talk I'm to him. Je- I'm jealous of me too, man. I can't even believe it. I mean, the the 15-year-old me in the 80s is like blown away right now by the fact that he said yes to me today to coming on the show. So uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm just really pleased. I, I can't even, uh, yeah, it, it's just, it, it's almost, uh, it's unbelievable. I think for your Jordan cards, the ones that I would like to own the most are the Fusion and the Playmakers Theater. To me, those are the two most important ones. And I think, to me, I like the looks, the aesthetics of them the most. The Slam Bams, cool card. I just like the other two more for myself. Can I can I jump in? Please. Uh, this will foreshadow something we're going to talk about later. But the Playmakers Theater is by far, by far and away more iconic than the Slam Bams right? We've all heard of the slam bams, but you kind of have to think about what it looks like for a second before you get there in your mind. Whereas the playmakers theater comes to you instantly. If you're like me, yeah. but you will see three or four playmakers theaters before you will ever see a slam bams. It's a far rarer car. It just is. And so for me, like, like I look at that thing and I say, I know that one of them's more iconic. I'm actually not sure which one would sell for more at open auction. And I know some people are like, come on, Adam, it's not even close. I actually think it's pretty close. But um, I would tell you this, and this might surprise you, Jeremy. The number one, and this is this is a note for Rodman, the number one card in my collection that I get asked about is 100% the Slam Bams. No so question. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I mean, people that know the 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 depth of the 90s inserts and parallels like like you do, like Rodman does, I mean, you guys know what you're talking about. I'm still a rookie when it comes to this stuff, a, a, a true amateur when it comes to 90s basketball cards. I, I am in terms of my knowledge base. I've picked up a lot in the last couple of years, but there's still so much I don't need. There's cards that show up that I've never seen before still. So um, that's why it's great to know people like you. Another another benefit of the community and the online community in particular is guys like Adam are willing to answer your questions, help you out, guide new people into the hobby. I mean, this brings us to what is supposed to be the last point in our discussion tonight, but is basically educating others, welcoming people into the hobby, using our our knowledge, our experience, our cards to help in, ingratiate new people into the hobby and make them not only feel welcome, but give them a bit of a head start so they're not going to make expense. They're not going to... Um, have expensive, le- they're not going to pay expensive for expensive lessons by making mistakes early and buying cards that may be overpriced, but weren't the, didn't hold the most, the, you know, a commensurate amount of value for that price at that time. I hope that came out good. Anyway, okay. Brett says that it was a Netflix on decluttering. Thanks, Brett. That makes a lot of sense now. Uh, and your son, uh, Adam, your son's favorite card is the precious metal gems. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't doubt it. Uh, Rodman says, I would say the 27 guy is far more famous than Dr. Beckett. On Instagram, he might be. He might be. Carvin, Carvin Chung of GTS says, has to be cards you like the best. And I mean, you know, Carvin, thanks for saying that because that is true. We That's like the mantra. That's what, you know, I've been setting up the expo for 15 years. The viewers know that by now. But 
about about probably five years ago, I changed my 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 booth name and banner to collect what you like. That's just what it says. It's not a it's not a name. It's not the name of my business, my store, nothing. It's just a message to people: collect what you like. That whatever you want to look at the most, you should collect. And if you can can marry that with a card that has value and room to go up in value, then you're going to kind of do yourself that favor on the financial side of things as well, as well as owning cards that you love to have to share with your friends, to, to show on Instagram and all that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, and Aaron clarifies the blue one. All right, Brett says, do you consider rarity when moving a card out of your top 100 when bringing in a new item? So listen, let's get to this piece now. Great segue from Brett. Let's talk a bit about the difference between and why you focus on true rare cards that are of a true rarity versus high volume slash commodity cards. And what do you even mean by high volume or commodity cards? So let me preface this by saying what you said earlier, buy what you like is, is definitely a tagline that I live by and um, is, is something that I've talked about for a long time. When I worked at the card shop, I would have people ask me a question that has never made sense. It was, what should I buy? And people ask this question a lot, what should I buy? There is no question. You should buy what you like. Unless you're here just for the investment thing, then there's a million people who are going to tell you what you should invest in. But there's a chance that all this stuff is going to go to zero and be worthless, right? I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but it could happen. And if it did, it'd be sure a shame if the thing that you were holding at the end was a bunch of stuff that you didn't even like. And so at least if everything goes to zero, you should, you know, you should have, you should have what you like. So how does that relate to this idea of like buying rare cards. Well, I love the chase. And you don't, I don't understand even how, and, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to shape how people buy. That's something that I'm really sensitive to. I don't want to tell anyone go buy this or, or don't buy that because then I'd be talking out of both sides of my mouth. I don't get to say, go buy what you like and buy this stuff. You can't do both those things. That's disingenuous. You can say, buy what you like. And then these are things that I think are smart buys. Um, so maybe that's what I'm saying. But for me personally, I love the chase, right? I just told you that my favorite card, maybe of all my Jordans, is the card that comes up the least often and that a lot of people are after. I love the chase. So when I look at my collection and I see cards that are that are rare, well, there's a lot of one-on-ones that aren't worth anything. So, And you can't get rarer than a one-of-one, one, right? So it needs to be both rare and really important. Um, I've heard people say in, in various places recently that iconic wins, that iconic beats rarity. I think that's probably true in the short term. Um, rarity matters. Rarity will always matter. When you make a million cards of a, of a card in 1989, the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie, and it's the most popular card maybe we've seen in our lifetimes, it still isn't going to be worth a million dollars because they made so much of it. And people will say, oh, the laws of supply and demand, they don't work right now. Okay, maybe in the short term, funny things happen and people buy up a whole bunch of stuff or whatever. In the long term, rarity wins. And more importantly than the financial side of it, owning something where you can say, I'm the only one who, who owns this and it's important. And let me tell you why. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example today on the on the top 100 list. I showed off a, a, a UD Black autograph card. It's called an Octograph from 2008. Um, it's number to five, and it's got eight autographs on it, as the card implies. 
The eight autographs are from eight Boston Celtics that played in the 1950s and the 1960s. Most of the people who are listening to this don't care about that. But that's the most significant dynasty maybe in the history of professional sports. And that card has 55, it represents 55 championship rings on one card. That's like history. That's a piece of history on a, on a piece of cardboard. And I know, you know, I know Jeremy, you're not a huge autograph guy, but like you have to see that and think about that and go, goodness, that's really neat. That's like really important. And the fact that that is at the same value as like a card that's out there that there's thousands of copies of in that same grade does not make sense to me at all. And so for me, you can tell which thing matters more and which thing I appreciate more. I will always, always go, go towards that rare, important thing more than the thing that's hype. The thing that's hype, I, I genuinely just don't have time for. And you can get it anytime on eBay, I think, is, is the other thing for you. You want the stuff that you just can't go get anytime because it is it just comes back down to the fact that it's truly rare. A little bit earlier, you made the comment that, you know, it's hard to say to somebody, um, you know, I think you should buy this, but collect, but buy what you like. I think what you, I, I had a thought that ran through my head that specific moment was it, I think what you can say to people is that you, here's something that you might like. I, I don't know what you're going to like. I'm not, I'm not in your brain. I don't walk in your shoes, but here's some cards that you might like. And the more we get to know our fellow collectors and our friends in the hobby, you kind of get to know their taste and maybe it will allow us to make more specific recommendations that are maybe, you know, you might like this. It's, it's got an element of rarity, but it's also, you know, got an element of value too. So I think we can all be doing that for our friends in, in the hobby. Uh, Frankie agree. And Frankie is a, a, a Michael Jordan expert says, I agree. Slam Bam shows up far less frequently than the playmaker. So it's interesting, right? I mean, maybe they didn't all make it out in, into the, into the packs back in the day. Ziggy says, why is 90s basketball not considered junk wax? Was there junk basketball wax now that everything Jordan is worth money? When was the first basketball auto and RPA cards? Thank you. So I'll let you, Adam, take the, the second part about when was the first basketball auto relic and RPA cards. But I will just mention that, you know, there was junk basketball wax in the early 90s. I, I mean, the first the first upper deck basketball with the Dikembe Mutombo card, that was a, a monster card. The Larry Johnson, those cards were monsters back in 1992 when that came out. Nowadays, you can buy a box of that for 5 or $10, uh, you know, at, at, a, at a card show. So there is junk wax from back then. And if you look, if you follow the basketball 90s market, the high-end stuff, the, the valuable stuff, really you don't have truly valuable cards until around 94 95 when tops chrome started coming out and though and then inserts became all the rage and then it really peaked in 1997 with the uh, the artists from arena design who have made appearances on house of jordans in the past so i recommend checking uh sorry on cardboard chronicles uh, josh's channel i recommend watching that he had a great interview with these the people that that were the artists that behind all these really interesting 90s inserts and cards and base cards even in all sports so really cool stuff uh carvin says i only like mj auto cards because his auto is classic hey man uh, you, you don't like them because they're just it's cool to have them carvin or because it's michael jordan it's, it's all of the above right it's all of the above for sure and carvin if you don't know anybody people that watching don't know carvin Worked for Upper Deck. He invented Exquisite. He invented uh, up Hockey's The Cup. Um, and then he went on to work for Panini. And now he works for GTS Distribution out of the United States. Um, 
Jake says, Ziggy, 89, here we go. 89 to 93 or 94 would be the junk wax era for basketball. Only a couple of inserts are exceptions to that. Sorry, I skipped ahead of the other stuff. Adam, can you let everybody, including Ziggy, know when were the first basketball auto relic and RPA cards uh, released? Yeah, so the first basketball autograph that comes to my mind is 1991 Fleer. That's Dominique Williams and Kimbe Mutumba, if I remember right. Uh, the next sub, the next few years, Fleer sort of picked a player each year that they'd focus on. One year it was Pippen, one year it was Drexler, one year it was Malone, and that's how that's how it started. But the first real like autograph sets um, that were that were larger and, and more of the NBA were probably the autographic sets in 1996. Um, as far as RPA, that's going to get to another question that that you've talked about, which is um, the differentiation between patch and autograph. And RPA stands for Rookie Patch Autograph. And there is a distinct difference between rookie jersey autographs and rookie patch autographs. That There always has been a, a distinction between those two. The first RPA, I believe, is 2001 Ultimate Collection, which is an unfortunate year to have started that. Um, the autographs skip a little bit. They're a little bit bubbly. And the, the rookie class that year is the great, you know, Kwame Brown, Tyson Chandler, Eddie Curry, Zagana Jop, uh, Jason Richardson. It's not, a, it's just a, it's unfortunately a really bad year for them to have started, but they did 25 each. Okay, cool. Uh, Jake goes on to explain here that uh, to Ziggy, you know, between 89 and 93 or 94, that would be the junk wax era for basketball. Only a couple of inserts are the exceptions to that. So pretty much corroborating what I was thinking and said earlier, but certainly not the expert that these guys are. So thanks for jumping in with that, Jake. Uh, Glenn says, I like LA Kings day with the cup cards, but hard to get one of each player when I need 12 more to complete my collection. Fair enough. Paul says, I worked at a, at a local card shop and that was the most asked question. Awesome. Your son loves the card. Awesome to keep it in the family. Carbon says, my favorite MJ is the autograph front back reflection reflections auto. I did this since MJ is the GOAT and only he can sign it. It was the first dual signed of the same player. Just awesome to have a guy like Carvin, first of all, watching the show, making comments because he decided that that card was going to go into that set and made sure it got made. So we've got one of the architects and Carvin is the architect of really the, the card sets that ushered in the high end world, really. I mean, the 90s were a different thing. Upper, upper Deck as a whole was, a, was the high end thing in 1989-90 when it first came out with that little hologram on the back and pictures on colored pictures and that new card stock. But true high end didn't really come out until Exquisite came out in uh, in 2003 for basketball, followed up by 2005 the Cup for hockey. So, um, and he goes on to say that's from 0304 Upper Deck Reflection. So, really cool stuff. Really good to know. Um, he also says my favorite combo auto I could never design is Mookie Blaylock signing with all of Pearl Jam members. Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam was originally called Mookie Bla Mike Blaylock. That's hilarious. Did not know that. Right, the trivia we find out on Sports Cards Live. Love it, Carvin. Thanks for the comments. It's all junk wax. The inserts were impossible to hit, which is why they are so bad. One of the cool things I'll point out: when I first got into the '90s Jordan insert world, I found this thread on Blowout that basically these guys had laid out for you what the pack hit odds were for all of these cards, and then they'd rank them. Like, here's one that's one in forty thousand. One in 20,000, those are tough odds, right? And that's not the odds of hitting a card from that subset. That's the odds of hitting the Michael Jordan. So you might've hit another card in that particular subset before you hit the Jordan, which is why these numbers are so so big, right? 
So I, I used that thread to help me decide what cards were important. And then I took that list of important cards and I compared it to cards that I wanted to look at for the rest of my life. And that cross section, that Venn diagram, what ended up in the middle became what is now, you know, I have many of those in my collection uh, at this time because I went out and I, I made the moves to, to acquire those cards. Um, Ziggy says, is there any good sealed wax from the mid nineties that you would recommend ripping for fun? Is there sealed wax with jambalaya cards? Adam, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think, I think that uh, sealed wax for the longest time was this really great place to go, you know, spend your money because, because there was a chance to get some of these things and the prices weren't just insane. They've always been a lot, but like now at this point, just to buy a box of 97 EX 2001, which is, which Ziggy was, I think what you're talking about for the, the original Jambalaya, you're spending so you're spending thousands of dollars for a chance and you're not going to get a, you're not, you're, you're not going to get that card. They were one in 720 packs. Um, you know, I think EX is, I think it was a 24 pack box. Jake could probably correct me on that. Um, you know, you're going to, you're going to buy 30 boxes of that to get one at this point. You're going to spend 30 grand to pull a Jambalaya and then it's got a one in 15 shot of being MJ. Right. So 15 times 720 being the, the odds of pulling the Michael Jordan Jambalaya, which is why that card now sells well into the five digits. Okay. Carvin does, he makes a point here. Um, the, the 0102 Ultimate, I think he is saying, is not the first RPA. The first RPA as a rookie card is 03 Exquisite. So I'm sure there might be some uh, details there that might distinguish one from being a true RPA. Maybe it was an insert, not part of the base set, therefore removing the RC designation. Can I just, yeah, I'll just add real quick. Carvin's right as far as the true rookie. That means the base card. Um I, I think that we can probably, but this is a parallel. A 2001 Ultimate was. It was a parallel to the rookie. I would still classify that as an RPA because it's not an insert. It was like it was a parallel off the base set. So that's that's a little bit different to me, but um, that's a semantics thing. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, then Ziggy says, Carbon would love to have you on the show and, and hear more. Thank you for the amazing products. Exquisite was the best and most fun to rip. Yeah. Agree. It's it's quite the product. And and Carvin, I mean, Carvin was my was my first guest ever on Sports Cards Live. So holds a definitely holds a special place uh, for me, Carvin. That was early on. I think the show's come uh, a bit of a long way since then. So Carvin, we're probably due to get you back on here. I'm going to reach out. We'll schedule you for a second appearance. I uh, would love to get you back, man, and uh, really dive in some more into that uh, architect, that sports card set architecture brain of yours. He says a variation, sort of confirming that. So, okay. So, I mean, I, I want to just, I want to repeat a quote. This is one of your quotes, Adam, that I heard listening to the Basketball Card Podcast. It goes back to how we collect. And basically you said that each collection is art itself, building a collection around an idea versus a set. And I love that comment because that's what I do. I mean, and that's that's what, you know, I do collect some sets here and there, but I, 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 I in a way, I have my top 100, but it's really, like I said before, it's a top 3,000, <laughs> which is, which is a, a staggering number. But there's people watching that have a million cards, right, that have hundreds of thousands. So what's 3,000? It's all relative, I guess, and it's kind of what, what you enjoy. And, and I don't know who has time to look at a million cards or 100,000 cards. I don't even have time to look at 3,000, but I managed to look at them on screen once in a while. Um, I thought that was just a really interesting comment. And if 
you know, to the viewers or anyone watching out there, like let let's hear how you collect, um, you know, in a succinct manner. So you, so I, if I bring your comment up on screen, it's not going to cut off our chins, but please do let us know. Does that kind of hit home with you? Does it make you think about how you collect that? You know, when a set, it's one thing about sets I don't like, Adam, is that I don't pick that checklist. So if I want to collect all the essential credentials or all the all the hot shots or all the jambalayas, and I'm talking about, you know, more modern cards where you can actually put these sets together still, I don't necessarily want to be forced or feel like I'm forced to buy a card of a player or the, a look that I just don't want because it's in the checklist with other cards that I do want. So I completely hear it. Um, I almost wish I could I could build check I could customize all the checklists myself, right? Because that way I could I could collect a set, know it's done and not need any more. And in the past, I was a set collector and I've got several. And now I'm thinking I guess my approach is I don't collect sets so much. There's a few I do, but the general, generally speaking, if I collect two or three cards from a set because I like those players, I don't anymore feel the need to go fill in the rest of those 17 other cards of players I don't care about just because I already got the three best cards in the set sort of thing. And I hear that comment all the time. People say, I've already got these three. I may as well finish the set now. Well, okay, but do you really like those cards? It comes back to collect what you like. Anything you can add on to that, Adam? We were getting some comments coming in, so we'll go to that. But does that sum it up for you or any other sort of uh, pieces of information on that? Yeah, I think I think you've you've just hit it on the head. I would tell you that I that I saw it a different way, but the idea that you can say, what do I want my whole collection to look like and what do I want it to represent? And my idea that I want it to represent, as I mentioned earlier, is the history of the game of basketball. So you can bet that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain are in my top 100. You, know, you can also bet that the cards or the players that I've cared about most from my lifetime are more prevalent. And the fact that I don't need to go get something based on what somebody else you know, has, has, you know, dictated would be in a set. That's, Jeremy, that's your point. I think the only caveat that I'd add to that is, um, like you, I'm a real fan of design and a fan of um, rarity and things that make, things that are really, like, different and unusual. Like, a set can catch my eye. And almost if there was a player in the set that I had never heard of, um, I still might go get it because, because I, I like the idea of owning that thing, that set, and having a, a place for that uh, for me is is important. Um, but I don't think I don't think that you should go out and buy things that you don't like just to just to put together a set. You should you should buy what you do like, and then like I said, for me, it's just something that's going to constantly build forever. Let's say Luca ends up being one of the best five players of all time. I don't own a Luca card right now. I'm going to have to get one at that. Point. Yeah. Get one because I can't have one of the best players of all time only having like the number ninety five card on my on my list. It's got to be higher than that. And that's because you want your collection to represent the history of the game. So if someone moves into that top five, they've earned their spot in your collection. The other thing about this, you know, the comment about buying that card in that set that you have the player you've never heard of or don't care to own. You know, there's a lot of people listening that are saying, "No, I'm buying that card. I want to complete that set." I mean. We've all been there. I've, I've been there myself too. I've recently stopped because you can only have, there's only so many cards that you can add. Um, but I think the other thing is that, you know, anyone out there who feels that way still, but wishes they didn't, 
you know, send me a message, make a comment, let's talk. We can we can provide counseling for that. You know, I, th I think there's a need for that for people to help them kind of reshape the way they they approach or, or just kind of look through that lens a little bit differently as to what they're what they're looking for. Okay, uh, a couple comments from a few minutes ago. Uh, Jake says, haha, there's always a chance Ziggy ripping is fun, but the ROI is brutal, especially for 90s wax these days. So that's a good, good advice. Uh, Brett says, great comment. All collections are art. I love the creativity and uniqueness that can be explored, definitely. Uh, Billy says, I don't think anyone ripping old product is seriously factoring in ROI. The odds are usually astronomical to pull anything in value of value. There are no guarantees that the cards will be in good condition. Great point. And I'll, I'll add that I think, I think when people are ripping some of that old wax, it's a treat, you know, they're doing it as a special a Christmas time sort of thing. It's a gamble though. It's a gamble. It's that thrill of opening up a product that is over 20 years old with the minute chance of hitting the jackpot. And if you do, what a story, make sure you're capturing that on video, right? I'll also mention Billy has a channel card, card on YouTube called Cardboard Nostalgia, where he all he does really is rip old hockey products, but but not 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 old as in 80s or earlier, more like 90s and forward, even some early 2000s stuff that is just really rare and tough to find that a lot of people would love to be breaking. So you can watch his channel to see those products being ripped. I recommend you check that out. Amit says, I don't have patience to build sets. I get nuts about a certain set. I have too many cards that I chase. So I've cut down to what tickles my fancy only now. Yes, Amit has some Upper Deck Supreme patch cards. I think he's probably got 500 of them by now. And I've seen him just kind of show me, hey, look what I got at the show today. He hands them to me like, you don't even know what's in this handful, do you? He's like, no idea. Just bought them. Don't, didn't even look at him. Just bought them. Ernie says, Ernie, welcome to the show. I only I collect only what I like. Don't follow trends. Opeachy hockey. Yeah, Opeachy hockey, uh, you know, for those basketball guys watching is kind of like it's the bread and butter of vintage hockey. Uh, vintage being from really 1968 to 1990 or so with some earlier sets in the 30s as well, which is pretty interesting. So great eye, Ernie, great eye. Brett says, I built a one. Oh, this is cool. I remember this. I built a one versus 100 set years ago. So he, Adam, you'll, you'll find this interesting. He had a card that was serial numbered out of one, a card serial numbered out of two, all the way up to a hundred for no reason other than it had never been done. I mean, sometimes, you know, and I think that's neat because there are times when you're a true collector and hobbyist, when whatever is being released may not be interesting to you. You may not, you may be going through a bit of a rut. So you need to invent something to keep yourself interested. And Brett's a guy I've known for a long time. So I believe that's what was kind of happening. He's like, I need a project to keep me in the hobby right now. And when that happens to you, I mean, with the multitude of cards out there, we have the ability, the luxury that all these companies have, have given us over the years by producing so many sets with all these parallels and variations and serial numbers, you can find something to keep yourself interested if you ever do find it going stale. Frankie says, love set building, but very picky. I do like historically important sets like 61 Fleer, 86 Fleer, first autographic set, limited sets. I agree with that, uh, 100%. Important sets are a little bit different. I think, you know, in, in hockey, for us hockey guys, the 51 Parkhurst, uh, the 1990 Upper Deck set, the 2005 Cup set, um, the earlier, the pre-war stuff, like those are important sets that have a different... Um, I think when I say I don't collect sets anymore, it's more like insert sets from current years where I might want the Gretzky, the Crosby, and the Ovechkin, but I don't care about the other guys in the set, so I'm not chasing them. But great comment, uh, Frankie. Love that. 
Carvin says there is a fine balance of inserts of insert cards. It's always supply versus demand. Products that over deliver the inserts will devalue the cards. Panini has done a great job with the color blasts in Spectra. So this is coming again. This is coming from a guy who has built card sets for a living and now sells cards to retailers and breakers and all that for a living. So he knows what's what in the hobby. So really heed, heed his words. I, you know, there's that's coming from from um, uh, really a, a place of, of knowledge. So thanks for that, Carvin, for sharing your, your knowledge and your experience with the viewers. Rodman says, the thing is a collection always evolves. The availability of cards is a main issue when building a PC, especially with rare 90s stuff. Upgrading is a natural process of every collection. Yeah, I mean, I know some people that don't necessarily need to upgrade, but then again, you find them upgrading later on. I think that's that's a great comment. And Rodman, just for people watching who don't know this guy, Rodman lives in Nicaragua, right? Nicaragua? No, 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 no. Honduras. Sorry, Honduras. Rodman lives in Honduras and he's, I mean, I don't, I've never been to South America. I don't know what Honduras is like, but I picture a guy sitting in his house, you know, balmy weather with these, all these Jordan cards. And, and, you know, when most of the hobbies that he, that he, you know, rubs shoulders with and communicates with are up in, in the U S and, and a few of us in Canada. So um, Rodman, I, just great comment. Thank you for, for watching and viewing. And uh, you know, it's just neat to, to be able to, and I said to Rodman after meeting him at the national last year, I said, I'm like, you know, where can I vacation in, in Honduras? He told, Oh, there's the beautiful, beautiful vacation spots. I said, well, you know what? Back then before COVID, I said, maybe one day I'll bring my family. We'll come to Honduras for a vacation instead of going to Mexico or, or a Hawaii or somewhere like, or Mac, you know, or Arizona type of thing. But anyway, Rodman, great guy. Thanks for watching. Amit says, so true, Jeremy. I'm curious, and I may have missed this. What criteria requires you to refactor the list? Well, this is to you, Adam. You want to just kind of sum that up because we did sort of touch it again, but let Amit know why you why you do change your top 100. Yeah, so I do it once every year so that I um, can kind of fulfill some of those things that I talked about. You know, I don't want to be a hoarder. Um, I want to see, you know, I want to have a good idea of what the value is. And so I order it by value. Um, some people don't like that. Some people are very uncomfortable with that. They want you to just, you know, order it in a way that's like, what's important to you. But like I was saying earlier, if I'm trying to build up my collection, having it in order of value allows me to then say what is worth the most that I can, that, that matters the least to my, to my collection. And that's hard to do. But then every year I go back into it and I look at it and the funny thing is that a lot of things change the list that have nothing to do with me, right? So um, for me, if, if you know, I'll give you an example. Last year I had a LeBron James uh, 2012 Silver Prism and it was ranked at like 95 or something like that. Now it's like one of the hot, it's probably like the hottest card of the year. It's probably the card that has like the, the, the best story with it or at least one of those cards that, that's, that's one of the cards of the year. And it's going to find its way into the top 20. And uh, I wouldn't have ever guessed that. I certainly didn't pay what I would have paid for the other cards that are in the top 20. But that's how the market has changed. And I have to I have to kind of reflect that in my collection. That doesn't mean that it's my 15th favorite. It means, that, or 20th favorite or whatever it'll be. But it doesn't mean that it's, it's that high on the value list. And ranking them in terms of value versus your favorite, it's just more objective and easier. Like you have to do your research, but at least it's easier than I, I could never rank my cards from people always say to you, what's your, what's the last card you'll sell? Like you said earlier, when it was asked, you hate that question. 
I can't answer that question. It's like, what's the last 500 cards I'd sell? Because I, I can't narrow it down to one or five or 10 or probably even 100, maybe 100. So uh, pretty, pretty funny. Okay. Um, Josh says, you know, the way he collects, I'm a player collector who puts cards in four row boxes for storage, you know, nice and simple. The question is how many players do you collect? Is it, oh, it might just be one. And, uh, and then how many four row boxes have you managed to fill up so far? Peter says, Jeremy, you finished a set for me, the auto patch set team from Canada Olympic Hockey Gold Medal Winners 2010. Then I framed them up, Duncan Keith, SP Authentic, uh, Patch Auto, and Zebra Cupperkey. Peter, I do remember those cards. I remember selling those to you a few years ago. And what's cool about this set that Peter put together is it wasn't a set from a checklist. He actually took a, a team. It's more like a PSA set registry set where he said, Listen, this team, these are the players that played on the on the 2010 Olympic hockey gold set for Canada. I'm going to go get one card of each of them. And the cool thing was that it, he could pick whatever card he wanted. He picked the card that looked the best. When I offered up a Duncan Keith card that he thought looked beautiful because it had a wicked Chicago Blackhawks patch, that's the card that made his, his personal customized checklist. Again, if you didn't hear that, guys, that's, an, that's a great way to collect. You know, you can pick your favorite team of the year they won the championship or whatever, the year you remember the most, the year you went to the most games with your dad or your mom or whatever, took your took your, your young child for the first time and go buy one card of each of those players. Doesn't matter what the card is, the card that you like the best. Paul really liked Brett's idea of the one versus 100. Yep, Brett confirms what I said. You wanted to keep things fresh and just have something really to chase. Billy says, were there any MJ 101 specifically in the 90s? What is considered the definitive, hardest to find, most valuable NBA insert from that decade? Not including high-grade rookies. I mean, it's got to be the PMG Greens. No no doubt, right? Well, there, there are a couple of 101s. There are a few. Um, Nat, Nat Turner owns, it seems, basically all of these cards. Um, but he but there's the there's two years of uh, Flair Showcase uh, where there's masterpieces. There's an ultra masterpiece. There's also, and this is kind of a weird set, but there's a set that came out in 1998 called Hardcourt. Um, or it's Hardcourt? I should know this because I because I've owned some of them. But um, they have a set that's called Holding Court in in them, an insert set. And the insert set has various levels: a level to 2300, 230, 23, and then a level to one. And each of those cards has MJ on one side and another player on the other side. There's 30 of them, I believe. And those are all one of ones. So if you, if you count those as one of ones, which is a little bit fun, funky because, you know, there's 30 MJs with 30 different players on them. And then you add in the others, there's probably, you know, close to 40 one of one MJs um, from when he was playing. And actually, if you get into 99 and 98 in upper deck, there's a, there's a bunch more of them that are like parallels. But those are sort of one offs and not not thought of as much as what you just mentioned the PMG green. Frankie does kind of confirm that, you know, several one-on-ones, best ones are the masterpieces from Flair and Flair Metal, also some printing plates and Stadium Club. Uh, yeah, Carvin confirms Flair Ultra. Uh, Carvin Carvin owned the the MJ, the Platinum MJ one of one and and brokered a deal for a Filipino seller with two green PMJ uh, PMG Michael Jordans. That's unbelievable. That's now uh, at least a million dollars worth of cards in one hand in, in two cards. Uh, Frankie also meant, yes, hardcore baseline grooves, gold one of one. It's a wooden card. So lots of lot. There, there you go, Billy. Lots of knowledge in the room here tonight. 
Brett, this is a good question for you, uh, Adam. How many cards typically in a year do you swap in and out of the top 100? And sorry, sorry, Brett, to, to interrupt your question, interrupt myself asking your question. But, um, you know, you mentioned the LeBron Silver Prism a bit earlier, the 2012, Adam. And you said, you know, that card's going to move from like 95 to number 20. When you do your top 100 list, do you ever kind of, do you in your description, do you say, hey, this is the card that took the biggest leap from last year to this year? Because that would be interesting. So, sorry, can you answer both questions? Yeah, I'll add one other thing to it, which is that I didn't comment on Brett's uh, number to one, number to 100 set. And I think that's so cool, picking something that's so different than everybody else. And, and, and like, you know, people talk about zigging while other people are zagging. Yes. Do the thing that you love to do, Brett. I, I'm, I don't even know you, but I'm like a huge fan already. Um, so, so that was my first part there. And then your, your question, uh, Jeremy, um, I have done some of this, like this one went up the most, this one, this one, you know, fell the furthest. I have done some of that, but it ends up being time consuming enough that like, at this point, I'm kind of just, and now it's highly detailed. If you read, usually I, I've got several paragraphs of information as well as creating a movie and stuff. So it takes some real time. Um, I should probably, I should probably do that. And then to answer Brett's last question there, the first time I did the, the list from the first time to the second time, the first time I did it was on blowout in 2018. And that was awesome. Like that was so cool like in that format because people got to like respond afterwards with why they liked it or why they didn't like it or whether they thought it was too high or too low. Um, from, from that time to the second time, I think I switched out 17 cards in a year, but this year, because this year has been the year of Kobe for me. And I have really pretty dramatically changed my collection, not the top 10, not the top 20 even, but like, maybe even like 30 to, to 100, I've switched out a ton of cards this year. And so, I mean, it's probably, I'll bet it's 40 cards I've replaced. Um, to your point also, Jeremy, uh, the thing that I do this, that I've done this year, and I know I'm jumping around all over the place, but I want to mention this because I think this is cool. Every day that I add an, an, a card, um, what, I, what I've done this year is I've done a side-by-side -side with it. And then the previous card that the, that the people that the, that my followers voted that they liked more. So what I'm doing is saying, you know, take the last card that you voted for as a winner versus today's card that I've voted higher. And what I've seen is that the voters like probably half the time disagree with me. But also what I've seen is there's a tendency for the voters to vote for things that are more recognizable or players that are more rec recognizable. So like I think I could post a $500 Jordan card against a $1,000 Chris Webber card. And people are going to vote for the $500 Jordan card. Because they're familiar with it. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense for sure. Uh, Ziggy, Ziggy wants to, who's the youngest player in your, in your list of a hundred Luca, Jaw, Zion, AD, Kawhi. So it's Trey Young. Um, I, I own the Trey Young uh, optic gold vinyl, which is a pretty big card. Um, I so the question is why would I own that card? And it's because I need something speculative in my collection, and that that was highly speculative. But but again, this this speaks to how I collect. I bought it for for twenty. I mean, I'll just tell you guys, I paid twenty five hundred dollars for it. Uh, at at uh, it was on eBay, and it was the night before or two nights before he scored forty nine in a in a triple overtime game, and then all of his stuff exploded. It's 
you know, if you know anything about 2018 optic, you know, it's worth a whole lot more than that. Now, um, his like some cards that are numbered to hundred and to 50 are worth more than what I paid for the one of one, you know, the best card of his. So I own that one. Do I think that he'll be better than Zion or Kawhi or Luca? No, probably not. But I think he's one of those rare guys that like has this kind of crazy, funny ceiling. Um, and he could be like, I, I don't think he'll be better than Luca, but weird things happen in the NBA, man. Like we, we always think oh, like, let's go back to 2015, Andrew Wiggins or 2014, Andrew Wiggins was going to be one of the great players of all time. We forget that now. I remember people were saying, look, this is the best prospect since LeBron. They didn't mention guys like Durant. He was going to be the next, it was going to be Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker wasn't far behind him. Things happen. Injuries happen. Weird things happen in the league. And, uh, you know, there's a chance that Trey could be the best card on my list. Probably not, but there's a chance it could be in the next couple of years. It's also, there's a chance that it could fall out of the top 100. And that, to me, it's important to have one card like that on my top 100. Very cool. I, I love that you have a spot on your top 100 for a, for a card like that. And, you know, you said things happen to player, you know, personalities happen too. Attitudes happen. And that it can impact a player and how he gets along with his teammates. And is he really going to be successful or is he just going to be bounced around the league? Cause he's going to be a project to one team after the other. And eventually these guys just kind of fade away. So, okay. Um, Jake says, Adam, what's the most extreme lengths you went to obtaining a card, any great stories or adventures? Is there something that sticks out? Oh man, I do have, I've got so many stories, Jake. And uh, people who are listening to the show right now have helped me do it. Uh, Chris, who was on your last last week's episode, helped me pick up. Um, okay, so, so let me back up. After Kobe passed away, uh, I did what a lot of people did, which is I kind of like I mourned for a time, which is a weird word to use for somebody you don't know personally, but like I really mourned. And it was weird because he's, you know, he was a guy who I rooted against. Um, but I I came out on the other side of that, recognizing like what an important figure he's been in our hobby and in like in my life. I don't, I don't think I've watched any basketball player more than Kobe Bryant, which is crazy because I'm a jazz fan, right? Maybe Carl Malone. I don't know. Um, anyway, so I decided to go get it, get all the key Kobe Bryant cards I could get. And some people are, some people are, are thinking about value. How do they get the things that are going to go up the most? That's not the question that I ask. The question that I ask is what cards do I want the most? And so there are two cards that I got the chance at, and they're kind of, and they're kind of tied for, for this answer. One is the the gold 2012 Prism uh, uh, Kobe, which is number one of ten. So it's literally the very first copy of a Kobe Gold Prism that showed up on Comsi. Now you're probably wondering, how is this an answer to Jeremy's or to to Jake's question? The reason that this is an answer to that is when it popped up, I didn't have the money in my account to go get a maybe the most expensive card I've ever bought. And so I actually had to contact somebody at ComC and structure a way for him to contact the seller to give me time to pay for it. Cause I didn't want to go sell many, many, many dollars worth of cards to then not be able to get the card. So I did a negotiation between me and a guy who worked at ComC with this guy and the, the, he was willing to pull it off of ComC for a couple of weeks while the card sold and then list it for me to buy it. And I was glad that he did that because otherwise I think it probably would have sold. But um, I think he was happy to sell it to me because it's nice to know you're dealing with somebody who who isn't who's not going to 
try to take you for a ride, you know, and I didn't, I'm not, I'm not super condition sensitive the way some people are. So I wasn't as worried about the condition, but the condition was awesome. The other story that I'll tell you just real quick uh, is there was a card that showed up um, after Kobe passed. There were a lot of people who listed cards of his that had had, it, had them in, you know, uh, their attics or their closets or whatever. And they just all listed them at the same time. So it created this very interesting situation where the market was flooded with cards that hadn't been available for a long time. And nobody had enough money to go buy everything they wanted to. And during that time, somebody listed the first Kobe Bryant autograph patch. There's eight of them in the world. One of them hasn't been on eBay in over a decade. Like you can't find a record of one ever being on eBay. The guy didn't put the word auto in the listing, just said patch. And I found this thing and I was like, what in the world? The guy had a feedback rating of one. I looked the guy up on LinkedIn. I looked him up on Facebook. I did everything I could. And at the end of the day, I was just like, I need somebody to help me with this. So I called Chris, uh, Chris and Christina, and they were willing to drive an hour and a half to help me get that card. And that's one of my very best cards. I wouldn't have it if they weren't willing to do that. So I paid them a little bit of money and, and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are the best humans I know. And um, and now I have, like, I have the first Kobe Bryant autograph patch, number eight. And for me, that's just, it's awesome. Yeah, that, that's a major, major holding. Congratulations. And nice of Chris and Christina, co-hosts of House of Jordans. To, to go out of their way like that and get on the highway for an hour and a half for you, that, that's that's special for sure, for sure. Uh, Joe says, appreciate that the representation of eminence in the top 100 really has me investigating what's out there. Case in point, your LeBron inclusion. Josh says, I have six or seven boxes of Ovechkin, three boxes of Nathan Horton. That's quite the uh, quite the PC. And I, I love Ovechkin's one of my favorite players to watch. So love that, Josh. Love it. And I knew you were a Nathan Horton collector. Uh, Carvin says collectors would rather sell and trade with collectors. Yeah, I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense too. It's nice to know, you know, I've you know set set up at, at the expo for many years in Toronto. When I've the odd time that I have taken a card out of my personal collection to sell it, you know, sometimes I'm I actually it's like I interview the buyer, like what other cards are in this collection that this card is going into. Are you really going to love this card the, the the way that I've loved it for 15 or 20 years? And, you know, there's been an occurrence where I just decided, you know, you know I'm not going to sell this card. This card is not going to go into that specific home for whatever reason. And it's I just kind of laugh at it now. But it's something that, you know, you feel strongly for. A lot of people refer to their cards as their babies. You know, I mean, they're babies. I mean, that's a term we use for our offspring, for, you know, <laughs> for our children. So, People, we, we, uh, hey, and I love cards as much as anybody. I've said it a hundred times. So we love our cards. I, I get that a hundred percent. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's, you want these things to, to end up where you want them to end up and not just be flipped and flipped and flipped and flipped to be really uh, appreciated. So love it. Love it. Okay. There's a, there's a major topic I still want to talk about. And we're, we're coming up to, our, we're at the hour and a half mark, but there's a topic that I put out there that we were going to discuss today so we have to discuss it and we want to discuss it but let's totally switch gears there's there's a boom going on right now in the hobby things are happening the the hobby is on this steep incline values are going up lots of new collectors slash investors coming into the hobby people are now dabbling in other sports even myself started dabbling in basketball a bit more than this recent thing a couple of years ago but a lot of basketball people 
I, you know, I'm, I'm getting messages all the time right now from people saying to me, Hey, because of you and your show, I'm interested in hockey now. And I'm like, well, that's super flattering. If I can have, if I can be, a, if this show can have a little bit to do with moving the needle towards helping the hockey market out, I'm, I'm proud and honored to be able to, to have a part in that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really just, uh, it's just awesome. It's just awesome that people are now willing to look elsewhere because they love the hobby. And, you know, I think there's a lot of almost like exploitation going on and people not, you know, a bit of the whole FOMO thing. You don't want to miss out because, and you're also looking for where there can be value because, you know, hockey is certainly the, on the, the fourth sport in terms of sports collecting popularity. So maybe there is more value there, more opportunity and people are, are opportunistic. Let's face it. So there's this boom going on right now. There was a boom in the late 80s, early 90s, as Ziggy has pointed out, the junk wax era. But there's differences between the 80s or late 80s, early 90s boom and this boom going on right now. Adam and I discussed it the other day. We've kind of got some, some thoughts on it. We have our own thoughts. Start with you, Adam. What, what are your thoughts on it in terms of like what's different between the, the boom right now that we're experiencing like literally in the last three, four months you know, as part of a year-long boom, but really we've seen the spike in the last three to four months versus the the boom of the early 90s? You know, it's such a good question. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot, there's a lot of differences, and there's been a lot that's been spoken about, about this. Um, what's cool about this is, for, from our perspective, is that both you and I were there, right? We know, we know what it was like. Um, I remember it. And uh, that's, you know, that's when I started collecting. I remember card shops that had a hundred people in them and couldn't, and couldn't fit as many as they needed to for, you know, the bid board when, when the auctions were ending in the local in-store auctions. It was incredible. Um, and I, but I, but I, the thing that I point out is we're just always, so I, I point something out and then I'm, and then I'm going to add to it. We're always going to see highs and lows, right? If, if I look back at my history in the hobby, the, some of the times that I remember most is, is high points. In 1992, when Shaquille O'Neal was a rookie. Um, in 1999 and 2000, when Vince Carter really started to take off. Um, you know, and that, that was the same thing in football, too. There was some really hot stuff in, in, in that area. When LeBron came out, his, his cards were incredibly popular. And then, you know, you go back to even 2000, in the last few years, it's, it's, it's been really popular. So, but there, but there's this question, and, and that is, you know, what's different now than than in the last couple of years? Because we cer we certainly see seen this increase, and I think there's multiple there's a confluence of events. There's multiple people who are looking at this like a currency. Um, it wasn't until a few years ago where I realized like, sports cards are a currency, and they're a currency just the way, just the same way as anything else is a currency. If you try, if you if you research how currency has evolved through time, currency used to be uh, connected, at least in the United States, with um, with precious metals, right? With gold, with the value of silver, and uh, that's that's what it was tied to. Then at some point, it was the decision was made: okay, currency is no longer tied to anything. A dollar is just worth a dollar because we, the government, say that it's worth a dollar, and then the value of that dollar fluctuates up and down, left and right. Well, cards. Cards are the same way, right? They are currency. They have value. The thing that's different about that and a dollar bill is like you like to look at the you like to look at the card. The card has something special about it. 
there's a there's a specific number of a lot of these cards that are available for sale. And even the cards that are ultra mass produced that I've already acknowledged on this on this episode that I have no interest in, they still have a finite number that are out there. And I think people have become, you know, people have become less tied to the idea that the dollar is the only currency. People are more willing to, especially after cryptocurrency, people are more willing to think in an abstract way about it. So I think I think that's that's the first part. I think the next part is that um, is that you've got people who are like like you've seen with my son during this episode. You've got people who now have money who are bringing their kids into it, and the kids are buying a ton. And then the last thing that I would just say uh, is that you have people who are willing to buy extreme quantities at extreme values. Um, I, 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 I've told plenty, plenty of people this, I've mentioned it during this, during this uh, discussion today, I work in private equity and our job is to go out and raise money sometimes. I could probably go raise a $10 million fund that just invested in basketball cards. And if I can do that, I can corner the market on a lot of stuff and the values will, will grow exponentially. And then if the player also, also blows up, you have a situation where you have an incredible investment on your hand and, and where you can set the market value. And so that's not really organic, but that unquestionably has happened um, along with the other things that are more organic. Okay, man. Great comments, you know, great insight. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll build off of that now and I'm going to probably go off for a couple of minutes here. So sip your drink and uh, sorry, everybody who wants to hear Adam talk, but I'm about to go for a few, a few, a few minutes here probably. So, uh, but before we do, Ziggy, respect to Chris and Christina. Great stories. Yes. Jason, I remember selling you your Howard Chuck PSA 7. I'm glad you still have it. Uh, Amit, you're probably gone by now, but thanks for watching. You will catch the rest later. Um, okay. So my thoughts on the difference between the, the boom we're experiencing right now and the boom of the 90s is that there's one, one key differentiator that I see. And that key differentiator is that in the boom of the early 90s, the cards that were driving the hobby were the cards that were coming out in the early 90s. So cards like the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, the, 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 the initial, the, the inaugural issues of upper decks, baseball, football, basketball, and hockey. These sets were, people were chasing cards in those sets. And those, and therefore, they were then looking, starting to look back more historically to pick up cards that were older. But it was, it was the current day's cards, the ones that were being released at that time, that were driving the hobby and bringing all the people in, and even then helping people or encur encouraging them, leading them back in time further, so that they could then, and they were then going back and buying older cards as well. So I. To put that more succinctly, the current cards were driving the market and leading people to the older cards. What I'm seeing now is it's the opposite. It's the older cards that are driving. By older, I don't mean vintage like pre-1980 or even the 80s. I mean older cards, not the stuff being real, not the 2019-2020 sets. They are out there. The Lucas and the, and the Zions and the, you know, in other sports as well, they're all, they are all fueling the boom. But I think what's really fueling the boom are the iconic players' commodity cards, like the LeBron James Topps Chrome, um, the you know the, the the Kobe Bryant, the Michael Jordan '86 Fleer, the Wayne Gretzky '1979 Opeechee, the the '52 Topps Mickey Mantle, the the '90s Jordans. 
the cards that are, I think are really pushing the hobby and bringing in people are the cards that aren't necessarily this year's Zion prisms. Don't get me wrong again. Those cards have their place and they are important right now. And people are, and they are bringing new people into the hobby because Zion is this new superstar, especially if you're in New Orleans. But I really think that it's the older cards that people are noticing because they're making headlines. When a, when a 2012 Mike Trout, which is already eight years old, sells for 900 and something thousand dollars, people are going to take notice and they're going to consider it valuable. And they may start, well, Michael Jordan, he's the most iconic basketball player of all time. Wayne Gretzky, you know, the Joe Montana's, the Tom Brady's, the, the Joe Namath's, all these players, the Emmett Smith's even like guys, some of them are from that first junk wax era that are starting to drive it. So I think that to me is the key differentiator. In the 90s, the early 90s, late 80s, the cards of the day were driving the boom. Today, it's older cards that are driving the boom, not today's stuff. And I think it's a better foundation that the boom might, you know, we call I'm calling it a boom, but it might be more of a beginning or at least, you know, not the end of it where that boom crashed very quickly. And like by 93, 94, it was over. And that's why, you know, that's why so many people left the hobby for the second half of the 90s or even the, the second, the, the, the last two thirds of the 90s and came back in the early 2000s when cards got much more interesting with autographs and memorabilia. So that's my take on the biggest difference. There's some comments here. Um, unless you want to go first, Adam, with anything to build. The, the thing that I would ask you is um, what what gives you that? I think I think you're largely right, but. But is there any like is there anything that's like empirical that you would say kind of points you to the fact that like more people are looking at that or is it just a sense based on message boards and talk with people? I mean, it, it's watching the market. It's my though. It's my uh, through the lens I watch it on. I watch it through, which you know I watch it pretty closely. I watch cards in all four sports. There's a website I go to regularly. Um, it's I think it's Sports Collectors Daily. They have a. a the, the most watched cards on eBay by sport. So it's a quick way to know what people are interested in and what's hot in the hobby. I go there and I go through all four sports. And if it's a card I want to watch just because I like to watch the hobby, I open up and I, I add it to my watch list. So, and I go through that probably once a week and I add cards so that I know I can keep up, you know, and if there's, if there's three or four Jordan 86 Fleers, I might watch all of them because I'll get a better cross section of what's going on in case one just goes silly because of a couple guys going against each other. But I'll do that for old cards. I'll do it. I'll do it for like a fifty, a fifty-one uh, uh, Bowman Willie Mays. Meanwhile, I'll do it for a twenty-twelve Mike Trout, and I'll do it for a couple of these cards. You know, I'll, I'll watch a, a Wilt Chamberlain rookie, and I'll watch a Zion rookie. Not because I'm looking to buy them, but because I want to see what's happening in the marketplace. That's really what it is. But it's also all the content out there, all the people talking, all the people I've talked to. What is what are people investing in? And you know. If you're, if you're, we've talked on the show before about the baseball prospecting world where you're truly, truly, really gambling unless you, unless you're at, you know, unless you're really at uh, the preseason games and you're really studying these players and you happen to, to know what's going on with them personally, maybe you might know if these are people that are going to make it in the, in the, in the league in the future, but you're gambling a lot when you're buying up the current players and you're going to, you can very quickly be turned off of the hobby. Whereas if you're buying, the iconic players, the Hall of Famers, the legends, um, you're gonna, your, your investment is more secure. You're less likely to get turned off unless the whole world goes upside down. And like you said, it's a, it's a small chance that all these cardboard 
renditions and of players become worth nothing. So um, that's really where I think it comes from for me. It's just my just my observation. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you, but um, the only thing that I would add to that that I think is interesting is we are seeing record numbers of new cards that are being graded. And to me that, and, and maybe, maybe what we're saying is you've got people who are coming back into the hobby because of some of the things that now they can afford that are, they're historical and iconic and rare. And maybe now people are also sort of getting into some of the newer stuff because of that. But, but it seems like, you know, it isn't a situation where one segment is growing and another segment is shrieking. It kind of seems like everything's growing at the same time. And that's where we're like in a spot that does remind you of the early nineties and, and seems to your point, like it may be more sustainable, but, but you know, you also have pandemics that could, you know, I, I know what's happened during the pandemic so far, cards have just gone through the roof, but I don't know that that's a guarantee going forward. And, and it's just, it's very, it's very fluid. It's very interesting. I don't know what'll happen, but I know that it, that, that it is different than what we've seen before. Yeah. And I'm certainly not, I'm certainly not saying that this is not going to fall off or that we're not going to level out or that we're not going to retreat a little bit. I think we will eventually that you can't, they can't just go up and up and up forever. That's just not going to happen. It then, then you're in a, a very fragile bubble and that bubble will burst. Um, and to your point about, you know, the new cards and that people are buying old cards and new cards and old, I mean, anything over like three years old right now, I think, or, or players that are established, like a Luca's pretty much established and his cards are only a couple of years old, but a, a LeBron and a Kobe and an MJ, I mean, they're much older, you know, to the tune of um, what up to up to 17 years older now. And those cards aren't going to go down in value unless the whole hobby has a bit of an adjustment, which it will. It, I guarantee you cards are going to come down in value again. Everything goes in cycles. And in five years later, we're going to be looking at back at this time. I don't know where it will fall. Are we at, are we midway up the peak, up the up the hill? Are we are we almost the peak or are we are we there? We don't know. No one knows where it's going to happen, what's going to happen. But I think when you see people investing thousands or tens of thousands into this year's rookie who's only played 30 games, I'm not talking about Zion because he might be special, but a guy who's only played 30 games or in any sport and they're putting big money in, that's truly a gamble, uh, you know, un un unless you are a Zion who is almost guaranteed to be the next guy in line from the MJ, Kobe, LeBron, Zion, maybe Luca's in there too. So, and then I think, you know, guys like Giannis, who's, who's base silver prism PSA 10 now does like almost $2,000, if not more today. I mean, that's, that's big money for a card, um, you know, of, of a regular card that's like just inserted regularly into, into the packs. When you're spending that kind of money on 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 uh, Giannis, it almost makes sense to if you think Zion's going to be like Giannis, well, maybe you want to spend that same money, or you're willing to spend that same amount amount of money on a Zion on this year's player, and that's where the you know if it's not Zion but somebody else, that's where the more gamble comes in. So again, I think I think people are coming in, new investors are coming in because they want the they're smart. A lot of these people are smart. They want the Jordans, the Kobe's, the LeBron's, but then they're seeing, well, Hey, if I'm going to pay, you know, $10,000 for a LeBron or a Kobe rookie, 
I'll spend two thousand on a on a Giannis, and then I'll spend two or three thousand on Zion if he's going to become like a LeBron or a Kobe or an MJ. So it's kind of like I think that I still think, even based on what you said before, that the the older stuff, the the more the more entrenched players are driving a lot of the new stuff. Versus in the in nineteen ninety, it was the new stuff that I feel was driving the old stuff, especially because. You know, Beckett magazines were only out for a few years by then. People didn't understand all this value. They were buying the shiny holograms on the back of the cards more than they were um, anything else. They were collecting because they thought, well, hey, this is new. This is going to be valuable. I shouldn't say they were collecting the holograms on the back more than anything else. But these, this was the new the new shiny product that was out that people were into. And it was introducing them to the potential to invest. It was a mania at the time. And it very quickly burst. So I think this one is a bit different. I'm not saying it's not ever going to burst, but I think it's we are on a we, it's more sustainable than than that other boom that we have been that we've been talking about. Okay, um, let's see what we have for comments because I'm sure there's a lot here that ties right in. Um, so I might whip through some of these. Billy says, "Weren't there people in the late '80s, early '90s calling a drop in card markets? There's always a Peter Schiff calling a collapse, and when it happens, people only remember the correct prediction." fair comment. I mean, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've called it tonight. It's gonna, things are gonna change. It's not gonna stay this way forever. It, but it might be, it might be one or two months out. It might be one or two years out. It could be five years out, but it's coming. It's got to, and I'm not saying it's gonna crash. I'm saying it's gonna adjust. It's gonna correct just like every market does. It's it's cyclical, right? We see it. You see it in every market out there. Uh, Alex, welcome to the party. Welcome to the show. Carvin says, more similar to digital currency, there's no intrinsic value. Value is based on demand and buyers. Agreed. It's because we attribute value, people are willing to put their money into it. And these cards have become a store of value. I will add, just before I let you add, Adam, that people are looking at this now as this is how you invest in athletes. If you want to own a piece of an athlete, you own their cards. Please. The the study of economy and um, supply versus demand that's a very and, and supply and demand that's a very basic concept and rules most of our thinking around this usually is is where you need to begin and end these conversations with and so I agree with Carvin there just uh, tremendously the thing that I'll add though and it's this this comes from sort of my training and my profession it's it's a recognition that real investment dollars and I'm not talking about $20,000 or $100,000. I'm talking about tens of millions of dollars. That changes a market in a way that's that, that's that's foreign to us. And and it makes it behave in a way that that is similar to how we've seen the high-end stuff behave over the last 4 or 5 years. I personally believe there's more fund money and more you know when when we think about funds we're talking about like alternative investment funds that are based in in cardboard. I think there's more of that than people realize or large wealth investors that are spending literally millions of dollars on some of these things so that they can almost prop up value to be what it really is. And they can do that almost going forward. And so I, I think that, you know, when we talk about this supply versus demand thing, it's right. And it's, and it's where you should live and it's where you should think. But if you see things that are really unusual happening, just ask yourself, what if somebody came to the table with $20 million and said, I'm here to, to invest in this thing that's gonna be over the next 20 years. And, and ask yourself, would somebody do that? $20 million isn't very much money, right? We're, it's not, it's, it's, it's a, whole, it, it, it is to a single person, but in the whole, in the whole economy or in a, in a subsection of the market or in our market, it, it, it's not, I understand what you're saying. 
but I actually do think in our market, it, it could be a lot and it could, it could prop up certain segments in a way that is, that's really unbelievable. And, and it could be true that we're actually at the beginning of it. And so what I'm doing is kind of giving place for the idea that anything is possible from this point. I am not sure any, I've never had any idea whether we're at the top or the bottom of anything. I've never been good at predicting that because I think there's so many factors at play. But if you told me that we're going to go up for the next five straight years, I believe you. If you told me that we're going to just completely bottom out and, and things are going to be worth nothing, I believe you. I have no idea, but that fund money, that real money that's out there as far as investments is, is what maybe can lead you to think that we're not anywhere near the top. Right. Yeah, no, I think there's a good chance that we are not near the top yet. We might just be at the beginning, which which is a whole, which is kind of awesome to think about. Um, and when you say, you know, you'd believe it, you'd believe me if I said we're not going up. You'd believe me if I said we, we are going, we are going, we're not going up in value. We are going up in value. We're going down in value. I think really you'd believe that, yeah, it's possible. Whatever, whatever someone says the market's going to do, it might go that way because, but no one can predict the way the market's going to go unless you're the guy that put in the 20 million and then you're going to stop and dump everything. Then, you know, then you might have an indication of what could happen for sure. Um, okay. Uh, Carvin says we can't use sports cards in the true economics of the world. And that's interesting because, you know, you actually today, you, I think Carvin, you actually can, because if I want to go buy a house, all I need to do is list, okay, a car. If I want to go buy a car, all I need to do is list $20,000 worth of cards on eBay. And within a week, I've got the money in my bank and I can go buy a car. Now I can't go to the dealership and trade $20,000 worth of cards for that car. But if I turn that two-way deal into a three-way deal, I can do it. It's like Chris mentioned, Chris from House of Jordans has mentioned that he once went, he met a guy at a car dealership to do a deal. To He gave the guy thousands of dollars for a card. The guy took that cash and gave it to the car dealer and bought a car with, that, with the money that he sold his card for. So in a way, you can use them, but you're not going to go to the dentist and pay him with a, although if a dentist collects, he might take your 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 card for, you know, for fees. Like, why not? You know, especially, well, we won't, we won't get into, uh, you know, cash deals and that, but, you know, off the books deals, I mean, but, um, but yeah, that's definitely, uh, I don't know, the, the cards, they don't have intrinsic value in that you can't eat them, you can't wear them, you can't, you can't live in them but you can trade them for things just like dollar bills don't have any, and there's no intrinsic value to a dollar bill. It's, it's paper or whatever they're made of and they burn just like anything. And uh, you know, you, you, again, you can't eat them. You can't sleep in them. You can't wear them. It's just a store of value and cards are becoming a true store of value. And it's like, I call them fun money because money's no fun, but cards are fun, especially because they store value and that value moves. And money actually devalues if you hold it too long over time against inflation. So you're probably better off holding something that has the chance to go up in value, which is why people invest in the first place. Okay. Ziggy says, why haven't you raised money for the fund? I've heard groups talk about investment money. Do you or any of your coworkers collect invest in cards? Are you surprised sports cards aren't on LinkedIn? <clears throat> I can tell you for me, Ziggy, I actually did that about probably about four years ago now. I, I, some buddy, my poker buddies, I put together a bunch of them. We, they, they each, a couple of guys threw in one or two thousand dollars. I raised, I raised some money, not quite five figures, and I invested in, in five cards for these guys. And I still have these cards. And let me say, I'm, it was, it was seven thousand dollars, and those cards are now easily worth double. And uh, I'm gonna maybe now is the time to reach out to these guys and say, hey, do you want to sell? 
but I'm not going to advise that. I think hold them for as long as you can. Why not? So, and I think more and more people are doing things like that now. But to the big question, really, like, uh, why haven't you raised money for the fund? Well, I don't know that that's really your job, uh, Adam, to raise money for, for to, to raise money for a card fund. You work in a professional financial firm that that is dealing in equities that are regulated. Our hobby is not regulated, so the the real um, traditional investors are 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 going to do this as an alternative, not as a main thing. Please comment, Adam. So this is this is a super interesting conversation, and for those of, those people who have stayed with us, you know, the full two hours, this is probably an interesting thing to hear. So I'm sitting in my office right now, and uh, we're I'm not going to tell you anything about where I where, where I work and that sort of stuff. People could probably figure it out if they tried, but but we run you know, half a billion dollars worth of assets, and I'm the controller here, and, and it's a great place to be, and I love it. Um, I cornered my boss, um, which is a little bit scary, about a year ago. And I, I talked him through what our market looks like and what kind of investment opportunity I saw. And he looked at me and he said, I think we should do something. And I said, let's talk more about it. And what his idea was, why don't we raise a 10 to $15 million? These are his words. Why don't we raise a 10 to $15 million fund? Because I mean, like, I haven't spent any of my own money on cards in a long time, right? Like I have this collection, my cost basis in my collection right now is like, like a thousand dollars. And when you look at the value of the collection, you go, that can't be right. It's, it's right because, because of the way that the market moves, if you've been in this industry for a long time and, and you, and you know, if you've been in the hobby for a long time, I shouldn't call it industry, but you, you can, you know how things work. And you, you have an opportunity to make money here and there. And for me, I just built a collection along the way that's worth, you know, significantly more than that. But I've, you know, I've been able to pay for a good percentage of my house and a good percentage of my, you know, my cars and those types of things historically with, and I haven't done it. I haven't done it in a while. I haven't cashed out of my collection in probably seven or eight years now, six or seven years, but there's an incredible chance to make money there. If I wanted to, I think that I maybe could actually do that here. I think I'm in a very unique spot where I could really run a $10 million commitment-based fund on cardboard. And to some people that will sound crazy, except for the fact that if you'd given me $10 million 10 years ago, you'd have a lot of money now. And 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 uh, and, and, and that's not just me. That's a, That sounded very like arrogant, like, look at me, I would have done this. Jeremy would have done the same thing. And a lot of other people would have done the same thing because there's a lot of smart people in this hobby. Um, and, and so it is possible. The question of why Ziggy, I haven't done it is because for me, I actually think it's more beneficial for me to just keep doing my own thing. If I was a fund manager in this world, I would feel the responsibility to sell my cards so that I could not have um, the incentive to increase their value through being a manager. I hope that makes sense, but you can manipulate the market in a way if you're, if you're out there buying different things and that wouldn't be something that I would feel comfortable with, nor would I think it would be right. So that's why. Awesome. Okay. Chris says only difference now is that there are 30 parallels of cards that aren't ser that are serialized. Boom. Now seems similar to the early nineties to me, based on what I read about Chris, I, I strongly disagree. There are many more differences than that. We'll leave it at that. Carvin says, best investment, vintage cards, pre-70s, high-grade cards. 
again, I mean, how do we know that? How do we know that that's the best investment? Is that where there is that where there's the most room for growth? I do know that that's what Gary Vee is talking about on Twitter right now. He's saying almost every day buying vintage buying vintage cards from up until 1980 something or something like that. So you might be right because when Gary speaks, you know, he's got millions of people listening. So that could be driving that market as well. Um, for all collectible carbons as similar to trading cards, AKA vinyl, other sports memorabilia, comic booms. Oh, he meant books. Uh, Stefan, welcome to the show. Just hopped in, had a hockey game. Glad to catch the tail end of the show and some sorting music, some sorting background music tomorrow. Awesome, man. Thanks for, for, for tuning in and listening. Also says Gordy's the best investment. Hands down. No arguments will be recognized. He collects Gordy Howe, who's a fine player to collect. Paul says the weirdest part of COVID is pre-COVID. The weirdest part of COVID pre-COVID is current player price increases are almost always based on performance. There are players that in the NHL and NBA aren't going to play until the leagues restart in January. So, you know, that, that's interesting. And it's true because we were talking earlier and I had this thought that, you know, things happen and players values move, you know, because things are happening. Like they're, they got traded, they signed a new contract, they scored 50 points in an NBA game. He scored five goals in an NHL game. They won the Stanley Cup, the NBA championship. Nothing's happening right now. And the market is moving like crazy. Nothing is happening in sports and the market is moving like crazy. But it's really what isn't happening that's moving the needle. Things like sports gambling, fantasy sports, people spending money on travel, other luxury items. There's just more, more uh, money out there that's, that people can put into cards. Uh, and they're looking for that 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 action and cards are action because it you can now follow a daily and if you're if you're following if you're a member of card ladder house of jordan uh, chris from house of jordan's new project you can watch your portfolio move daily and and like they, they they're pulling in the daily values of, of some some of those commodity type cards which a lot of people collect so that's a great tool for them carbon says after covid all sports distractions is watching the hobby that is our daily sports entertainment beyond eBay, online breaks, podcasts, etc. No real sports. We need our sports fix. That's what I was just saying. 100% agree with that. Uh, not exactly sure at what point of the convo we are at. I think the basketball market will level off in the coming year. Not crash because there's too much new money in the hobby, but level out. And I think a level out is a level out is inevitable. Is it in the next year? Maybe. I don't, likely. Likely. But you. But. We're just speculating. Nobody knows. We're all speculating. And that's what makes this show fun. We get to speculate. Uh, Ziggy says, are you a fan of Panini's blockchain cards? Is anyone? Um, I'm not. Don't know much about it. Don't really want to get into that right now. Steve says, no. Carlos says, couldn't agree more. As impressive as big sales are, until six-figure and million-dollar sales become common in the market, it hasn't really hit maturity that is game-changing. But we're getting there, right, Carlos and Adam? We're seeing more and more. I mean, there was a time when you wouldn't see a modern card sell for more than 20,000. That Steven Strasberg Super Fractor 10 years ago hit 20,000. People were going nuts. Now it's commonplace for cards to sell for 20, 40, 50, $80,000. Not that many years later. Like, Adam? Yeah. yeah. I, I, the way that I would speak to this is there was a time where I said, I will never spend over a hundred dollars on a piece of cardboard. And then there was a time where I said, I will never spend more than a thousand. And then I remember specifically a point where I said, I will never spend more than 4,000. And now I'm at this point where I'm like, like, I have no idea how much I'd be willing to spend. What I realized though, is I believe in the marketplace. And I don't think that any of us has any idea. Like 
I never thought in a million years, you could never have convinced me that I would be willing to spend what I have spent on cards. But it's because I've been able to sell other cards for it. So clearly there's other people out there who are willing to, to, to buy it. And it's just, it's amazing. But a $20,000 sale, never would have heard of it. Even five, six years ago, very, very rare. Today, it means almost nothing. Yeah, like back, like five years ago, that was the 52 Tops Mickey Mantle. Those kinds of cards were hitting that kind of money. I mean, there's the Honus Wagner, which was in its own stratosphere, but you weren't you weren't hearing about much, uh, many cards passing that $20,000 mark, like you said, even five years ago. Um, Jake says, could we see corporations start adding sports cards to their investment portfolios? That would seriously change the game. I mean, interesting, interesting thought. Why not? There, you know, tax law becomes a big part of that too. And how that's going to be treated. Steve says, we're in the second and third inning of, of a baseball game. Yeah, maybe we are. I kind of, that's where I hope we are because I want to, I like growth. I like seeing growth and I've, I've, I'm, I'm invested as a collector. I happen to be by consequence invested as well. Like so many people watching are like you are, Adam. We're, we're investors by consequence, not because we set out that way. And a lot of these people coming in are, are, are investors that I think several will convert to collectors as well. Because let's face it, cards are effing cool. Okay. Carvin says, just something to ponder. 90% of all private stock customers that buy and sell their stocks lose money, even if they are 70% right, because the stock market is just another gamble. I work for a company that we are publicly traded and I see what people say in our investor group on Facebook. And I have to shake my head because I just know that they don't really know what they, they people think they know what's going on in a company, but unless you work in the company, trust me, you have no idea. Doesn't really, you know, it's not companies share information through their dis financial disclosures, their financial statements, their management discussion and analysis that comes out regularly. But you don't really know what's what's really going to happen in five. You don't know the mind in the minds of the man and companies are run by managers and managers are human. I, I'm talking that the president's still a manager, the CEO, they're managing the company. They're human. They can make mistakes. They have emotions. They things happen, right? You just never know. It's, and it's kind of the car, sports card investments are similar in that you don't know if a player is just going to lose it all of a sudden and go all OJ Simpson and lose value completely or whatever it is, or just storm off the team or piss off his teammates, become unliked in general, career ending injuries, pandemics. You just don't know what's going to happen. What's up, 90s basketball? All right. Uh, Billy says, MJ or LeBron could easily move their own rookies with very little investment. Add Mahomes to that list now. Yeah, that's always fun to think about players buying their own cards. Uh, awesome interview on Christina's Corner, Jake. Yeah, uh, Christina's Corner is a spinoff of House of Jordans. And Jake was a, a get. Jake, I still haven't watched that. I just haven't had time. And I said I was going to watch it the other night. I didn't get around to it. I'm going to watch it. I look forward to watching it. Check that out. Jake from 90s Baseball Cards is a guest on Christina's Corner. Paul says to play the ponies and be successful. You only have to be right 20%. I'm not a ponies gambler, so I can't really comment on that. Uh, not customers that are buying retirement funds or mutual funds. Okay, I kind of lost context, so I'm going to be more selective on the comments here. All right, and we are coming to the end. I mean, we're past the two-hour mark already, Adam. I'm, I feel like we're just getting started, though. Uh, Steve says, I'm so upset. I got into cards, ex back into cards exactly one year ago. Yeah, you're, you are upset because you wish you got in any time earlier than one year ago. Two years, 10 years, 20 years, doesn't really matter. Carbon says, agreed, cash has true value. If, if card market drops in value, you can't use it 
in the real world. Cards might not be liquid in a down market. Cash remains liquid always. Fair comment. Steve says, a little secret for me, I've not bought a card in six weeks. Prices are all over and I bought about 10K worth of cards in just my first year back in the hobby. You know, that's that's a, a significant investment and uh, welcome back. Welcome back, Steve. And just, you know, be careful. Buy what you like and, uh, and you know, kind of just don't, Try to avoid the mistakes. Try to avoid the pitfalls that so many people make when they first come in because they're maybe following hot trends. And I would recommend don't just buy a, a players of a cards of a player because that player had a great week. You know what I mean? Look more long term if you can. If you're patient and develop certain skills, you can get great deals. Definitely, Carvin, I'm in. We should talk. Not sure what that's about, but that's if that's about coming back on my show, Carvin. Thank you very much. Love to have you back again. Okay. Great answer and understand the ethical conflict that Adam was mentioning. That's exactly what I wanted to mention earlier when Adam was saying why he's not doing a card fund. Conflict, it, there's just too much room for bias and conflict there for sure. Steady growth, better speculative, says Carvin. Yes, Steve says established players are a smart, safe investment. Prospects are players showing they can be real stars. I've learned fluctuate game to game. Yeah, definitely. Alex says, can my Andrea Bargnani super collection spike in value? Please, please don't speculate by what you like. That's what we've been saying. Okay, <clears throat> we're at the end of the comments. Thank you, everybody who's watching for the amazing interaction tonight. It's It really is, you know, I, I love doing the show because I love just um, having these live. I feel like I'm, I'm running a marathon here, you know. I love having these lively discussions with the guest. And when everybody uh, viewing gets involved, it truly makes it so much more enjoyable for all of us and and hopefully for you guys out there too for adam my guest uh tonight listen man i mean the only thing we didn't talk about and we're, we're two hours 12 minutes already it's getting late was the was the fact that a lot of sellers including the big online consignment sellers we did you touched on it earlier but they're now they're now using the term jersey and patch interchangeably in on ebay listings and I think it's a little bit misleading because as a hobby, we consider a patch to be a lot different than a jersey piece, which you mentioned earlier. Patches are more, they're rarer. There's fewer of them available on a jersey. But I think a lot of it might have to do with the fact that some of the cards are named that way. It might be a patch card, but it may say auto, it might be called an autograph memorabilia card versus an autograph patch or an autograph jersey, which kind of grays the lines a little bit there. But this was, Adam, this was something that you based a, a, about 12 minutes of a segment of your podcast on, the, the Basketball Card Podcast, which is on the stream right there on the ticker, everybody down there. So if you haven't, uh, if you're not listening to his podcast, check it out. If you're not following Adam on Instagram yet, please do. One of my favorite accounts to follow, if not my favorite. Where was I? <clears throat> Can you please speak to that? What caught, how did you notice this and what are your feelings on it? Yeah, I think... Um... I think that this is a really interesting topic and I'll tell you how I noticed it. I noticed it on a card that I was looking up that I have the patch version. And I noticed a listing uh, from one of the main consigners that uh, or con consignment companies that, that listed their card as a, as a patch auto, but the patch auto was number to 10. It's a thicker card stock. It, it's a significantly different card then the jersey that was number to 50, um, this is this is a 2004 SP Authentic uh, card. I, I own the Kobe Bryant. It's a patch auto. It's a really sweet card. 
Um, it's numbered to 10. And somebody else listed, listed a card that's similar, um, but it was the jersey version as a patch. And so as somebody who cares about the value of my card, I saw that and I went, no, this is wrong. And I want to point out that it's wrong to everybody. But then as I started paying more and more attention to it, as the weeks went by, I realized, man, it seems like people don't even know the difference between a patch and an autograph or a patch, sorry, a patch and a jersey anymore. And I agree that there's some things that make it tough because, you know, you look back to the first jersey cards. That's 1997 Upper Deck. A lot of those Jordan cards, um, all of the Jordan All-Star jersey that year was, was packed out, or at least a huge percentage of it was, including pieces of it that we would consider a patch, right? But that wasn't the first patch auto. That was the first jersey auto. So it's confusing, right? Like it was a Jersey auto that contained patch cards, but it was designated by the company as a Jersey card, right? Since that time, Upper Deck and every other company that I know of, especially in the late, late 90s and in the 2000s, designated a difference between the two almost without exception. And it feels like a little bit like we're like, like sellers are tr trying to rewrite history, calling Jersey auto rookies, RPAs, calling, you know, Jersey cards, patches, because you add that patch to it. And of course you get more people watching. It's the same thing as spamming non-auto or something like that. The difference here is that I think that, you know, when you write non-auto, people can tell well, it's not autographed. When you write patch, sometimes I think the newer collectors might not understand the difference. And to somebody who's very interested in finding like the best the best version of certain cards. I think it's really important to understand the, the distinction between the two. I know some people don't like patch cards and that's fine. You, you, you know, not listen to this part of the conversation, but to those of us who do care about the history of it, seeing, you know, knowing people who know full well include the word patch when it shouldn't be there. seems kind of disingenuous, kind of, um, Sneaky. Kind of just, yeah, it's not okay. It's, it's a little bit sleazy. And, and I don't think that we should try to rewrite history. So, you know, when you're looking at a card and you see that it's numbered and you think, oh, that's a really good looking card, do your research, find out what the rarest card is. Um, the only other example that I'll give on this is uh, there was a Jordan, or sorry, a Kobe Jersey Auto that sold recently. And it's one of his first Jersey autographs. Um, and again, another, this is another story, but, but one of the con big consignment companies listed it and they listed it as Jersey patch auto. And then in the description, they said it was his first Jersey. It wasn't his first Jersey. It was a second Jersey auto. It's still a significant card, really, really significant card. Um, but it wasn't a patch. And so like, I, I, I kind of called him on it. It's like, I don't, this isn't a patch guys. Let's, let's get that right. Yeah, no, agree, agree. And I'm just going to pull up Billy's comment here because uh, he says, isn't it basically semantics at this point when companies are using photo shoot jerseys for everything? And I don't, th I actually don't think so at all. I, I think that, that Billy, I think that statement's completely inaccurate actually, because first of all, it's not semantics. There is a difference in in the, uh, the aesthetics of a jersey versus a patch. Patches are more textured. They have layers. They have more colors. They're more interesting and people want them more. Jerseys are often one color. They just don't look as nice in cards. And then secondly, um, they're not using Photoshop, photo shoot jerseys for everything. That's just a false statement to say that they're using them for everything. They use them here and there, but they use game-worn jerseys as well. So to say everything, it almost implies that they're not using game-worn equipment anymore, game-worn jerseys in the in the card. So um, I just disagree with that, but that's fine. I want so what you said before, Adam, when you said that, you know, the first set, upper deck, 
they put out patch cards, but they called them jersey cards. And I think that that's completely fair and honest because at the time that they didn't maybe realize yet that there was going to be such a big distinction in the hobby between jerseys and patches. It all came from the jersey. So they didn't care if it was a piece of the jersey or a piece of the number or the nameplate or the patch. It was all from the jersey. And then they realized, hey, wait, we've got these premium sections of the jersey and we're going to call them patches. And really, they're not patches. They're 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 logos, they're numbers, they're letters, right? Patch is just a, a word we use to to categorize all of those things. So interesting though, and I, I see how it, you know, because that's how it started, and maybe some of these sellers are using that to their advantage to mislead people. I hope not. I would like to think not, but it's hard to, you know, hard to ingenuous as, as you said with that. So um, okay, Steve, I just want to say welcome to Sports Cards Live. Thank you for tuning in. Great that uh, that you ran into to this show through uh, House of Jordans. Thank you so much for joining. Everybody watching, you know, I appreciate everyone's viewership as always. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Sports Cards Live channel on YouTube, please do. Please consider doing that. I would greatly appreciate it. I want to thank Adam for bringing new viewers to the show tonight, Adam. Adam has almost four, sorry, almost 3,000 followers on Instagram. So I'm sure you brought some new people to the to the channel today, Adam. I greatly appreciate that. I hope that by you appearing here, we're able to get you a few more followers, new friends, some more friends as well through this uh, on Instagram or anywhere. Ziggy says, how about this? Can you raise a 10 million? Let me and Jeremy run the fun. Ziggy, let's do it. Fist bump. All right. Um, <clears throat> what else do we have here? Uh, Chris says you can report people for keyword spam on eBay for the non-auto. Yes, of course you can. Great point. Thank you. Frankie says they are playing the keyword search game, adding any possible tag to attract buyers. Yes, they are. Fair, fair comment, truthful comment. Um, and that's just one of those things where like eBay etiquette comes into play and a lot of people have different opinions on that. Okay, and Steve says, great show, guys. Thank you, Steve. Maybe on that note, Adam, we should end this. So again, thank you so much, Adam, for joining me. This we're 220, one of the longer episodes. Again, I feel like we could keep on going. I've had a lot of fun with you. Thank you so much. Thank you to all the viewers for watching. Again, uh, managed to get Dr. James Beckett to be my guest on episode number 30, sort of an anniversary episode. So I asked him to join me for that one. He agreed. Super excited about that. Um, going to put up just on the on, on the screen below here kind of some of the, the other upcoming episodes. This coming Saturday, Chris Barr, Panini basketball brand manager, will be my guest. And then next Wednesday is Grant Sandground, who's the director of product development for Upper Deck. Some serious heavies in the industry, if you will, that are going to be joining me in the next couple of weeks here. You put those two guys with Dr. Beckett, and we've got a great lineup of guests coming up. Adam, final thoughts, man. I hope you had a good time tonight. I hope this was enjoyable. I know you stayed in the office to do this. Thank you for making sure you had the great Look at how clear and focused he is, guys. Like, you know, great internet connection, which I always appreciate. Um, and Paul, great show. Two hours flew by just like they did for me. There aren't enough hours in the day to report all the listings like that for sure. Adam, thanks, man. Thank you so much. Final parting words. Dude, this was a blast. The thing that people don't know is that we got together for like two hours last night and talked too. The, the great thing about this, and this is why I love working in the card shop for seven years. You can talk about cards forever. These episodes, you will never run out of episodes, especially with guests like the ones you have coming up. You're doing it. I've told you this. I told you this you know, personally, but I'll tell you again. 
like the job that you're doing right now, bringing on people of which I, I am, I'm not, I don't consider myself in this group, but people who are industry leaders and experts who are smart, who can teach us, you're teaching the hobby and you're providing entertainment simultaneously. And that's amazing. And so Jeremy, just thank you for being a positive influence on the hobby. And, you know, the only thing I would say is, you know, where, where you've got a lot of responsibility because because people are watching and like, it's, it's a big deal. So I just, you know, I hope, I hope that it just keeps going well for you and you, you just crush it, dude, because you're doing an awesome job. Well, thanks man. That's, you know, very flattering. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. I'm, I'm loving doing this. I, I get so excited for each episode. It's, I have so much fun doing it. I'm sitting here. It's like, I'm looking at the comments. I got my notes. I got you, you know, I got to drink, drink my water. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like, I'm, it's like a multitasking. To, it, it's, it's a serious rush. I love doing it. I love the hobby as much as anybody you'll ever meet in your life. I love cards. Um, and, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have the connections I do to attract these guests like Dr. James Beckett. I mean, Nobody is more famous in our hobby than him. Any, anybody, athletes aside, and they don't count. He's number one. He's the most iconic name in our hobby. And like I said at the beginning of the show, if you told 15-year-old me that uh, this many years later, I'd be having him as a guest on the 30th episode of my sports card talk show on YouTube called Sports Cards Live, I'd be like, really? That's what I'm going to be doing when I'm, when I'm that old? Anyway, it's uh, it's awesome, and I, I you know I, I see the responsibility in it, and I appreciate those comments. Um, <clears throat> you know, I I tried. I, I it's cool because to me, there's really no rules. You know, just be kind to one another. You know, let's not bash anybody. I'm not in, in the bashing game. Try not to use swear words on the show, but really, there's there's no true rules. I don't have any sponsors. I I don't know anyone anything. I can kind of just have the guests I want, and you know, make sure that we keep it a nice clean swift moving show so that the time does go by quickly and it's entertaining. So, but the, the part about the responsibility, I never really thought about that. So I will consider that more as time moves on, but I, it is a privilege to bring these guests out to everybody to, to see it's a truly is truly is I, I can't even say enough about that. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to fade out with the final comments I've been strolling in and then I'm going to end this thing. So Adam, thanks again so much. Steve says, Dr. Beckett is a cool guy. You can hear him on uh, an episode of Conversations with Chris, which is on the, the House of Jordans channel. Doobie Collects says, appreciate the great and informative content. Keep up the awesome work. I will do my best, Doobie Collects. Thank you for tuning in. Frankie, as always, thanks for tuning in. Loyal Watcher, Joe, bravo. Thank you so much, Doobie. You the man, Jeremy. I'm a man. I'm not the man. I'm a man. Thank you, Doobie. Thank you for joining the show. First time I've seen you, so really happy to have you watching. Brett says your enthusiasm shows Jeremy kudos. There's no doubt that I am enthusiastic about this show, this hobby, the guests and all you viewers guys. Thanks everybody for watching. I'm going to hit end broadcast. It's going to spin for a second as we wait for it to end. So let's do that. The show should be over.